Welcome to Cinematic Universe, the comic book movie podcast that only took four and a half years and 97 episodes to catch up with the MCU. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick. And James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of James Gunn's 2014 movie, Guardians of the Galaxy. We finally got that. Seb, Seb, the episode that you've been wanting to... Wanting to do since we first started. In fact, we, we started this podcast out. about six months too late, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was probably one of the movies that prompted us having the conversation about starting this podcast. Um, almost definitely, yeah. And we finally got there. Anyway, before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain to me something uh, that one of our former guests wants to know. Uh, so, a couple of weeks ago, Andrew Ellard at Ellard Ent on. Uh, it's El Ardent, isn't it? It's, it's, it's El Ardent is the point. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I will never read it that way. No, I always no, say it's El Ardent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew tweeted the podcast uh, in the wake of Infinity War. No, uh, Endgame. <sighs> uh, asking, um, here's a question for the show. Is there a mass crossover event in comics as good as the MCU, Civil War, Infinity War and Endgame? I've never been a fan of the ones I've read. Mostly they feel like awkward excuses for the splash pages with slightly off character writing. And Seb, I believe you you have an answer ready and loaded for this. I mean, it is something that we've we have talked about on on the podcast. I think we we have talked about some examples of of good ones. I mean, I, I think there are some genuinely excellent ones. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll concede that when I talked about Armageddon two thousand and one on a recent episode, I think I was talking about personal preference rather than it actually being objectively good. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Armageddon 2001, not generally considered good. <laughs> um, I would challenge anyone to not say that, uh, to say that Crisis on Infinite Earths is not objectively good. Crisis on Infinite Earths is, uh, ast- it, it, I mean, it's astonishing that it remotely makes sense. But I mean, you know, if you're going to talk about a crossover, this is a crossover that's, um, I mean, it's everything. It's the entirety of DC. It, it packs every character in. It tells an enormous story that is the biggest story that ever got told in DC Comics ever. Um, the fact that it is a great comic, and it really, really is a great comic, um, is is astounding. But I mean, you know, that that would be. I think there are others, and I have thought of others, and I'll have to remind myself of them. But that was definitely my. That, that's that's my lead-off example is Christ on Infinite Earths is, I think, the closest that comics have come to doing something like Infinity War in terms of just throwing everything. Just just to provide a counterpoint there, I read Christ on Infinite Earths and I found it impenetrable because you have to be such a DC nerd and of a specific era as well. Counterpoint, would you not have felt the same if you'd watched Infinity War having not watched any of the previous Marvel films? It's a crossover, isn't it? It's not a it's not a new reader friendly introduction. It's a crossover. Oh, I'm not, of what's I'm not saying it there. should be. I'm just saying it, <laughs> if you if you go like, oh, I want to read a good crossover, I'll pick up uh, Crisis and Infinite Earths. You're just going to be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and so, account well, a side question from Andrews, but I think also related to what he said because he specifically cites. Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame, which are kind of your three Avengers-y crossovers that run throughout Phase 3 of the MCU. Those, I think Infinity War, which is the one you've mentioned a couple of times there, is the one that feels the most like a comic book crossover, to me anyway, from based on my experience of yeah, comic absolutely. crossovers. And that's because it feels like it's the one that's the most plot-heavy and doesn't really have time to slow down and spend with the characters. However, across those three movies, you absolutely do. And and why I 
will always prefer Endgame to Infinity War is it felt like a big crossover, but focused in on this core group of characters that I could actually latch onto and felt like had arcs throughout the movie, felt like it was satisfying stuff from outside of just this crossover itself. Like it, the the comic book crossovers I've always read, and I'm going to assume this is true of Crisis on Infinite Earths, given what you've just said, is that they always feel plot heavy, and that you've got these chess pieces that you need to move around this big plot, but they're kind of, they're only that. And so when I've read stuff like Civil War, or even Secret Wars, which I liked, it did feel very much like this character has to do that thing, that character has to do that thing. A a moment might ring true, but overall it's about the plot, not the characters. So is there a a comics comparison that does the character stuff? I mean, I would argue that there are, but they're not contained within like seven issue series or whatever. Like the, I think probably one of the best Avengers stories that has ever been told is Jonathan Hickman's sort of, extended run on avengers new avengers which culminated in secret wars we're talking about like two years worth of comics there but it's essentially a permanent crossover Mm. like the the cast is huge they're constantly doing stuff like you can pick it up and read it in individual chunks but you need to read everything from the start in order for it to make sense and so it's hard to boil it down to like can you just pick up you know the the culmination like can you read Secret Wars on its own? Yeah, you can, but you don't get as much out of it unless you've read the two-year build-up as well. Yeah, I found it a bit disappointing because I hadn't been reading the build-up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you read the build-up to that, it's amazing and it pays off so much. Like, uh, you know, to stick with the metaphor, it is like if you watch Endgame on its own, you're not going to get all those constant callbacks and references and, you know, all the the things that make Endgame better than it is on the surface so maybe that maybe the i'm trying to figure out then maybe why the crossover in the mcu works as well as it does is it that the barrier to knowing all of the individual story threads going in in the mcu is so low that like in in two hours you can watch the latest installment with each different character and there's you know it doesn't feel like a an ominous task to be up to date with the MCU mm. and yeah. it, and and like if if you've missed like one movie that's not too bad you know if you missed a couple of movies that's not too bad you'll still kind of get the crossover so if you walk into infinity war and endgame knowing you know having seen civil war having you know been up to date with captain america and iron man you probably that's probably enough right Mm. I think as I think as well. I mean, obviously, the Avengers movies, and I'm, I mean, you know, Avengers as in that that series within the MCU, are obviously geared towards being ones that they expect that more people will watch than the individual character ones, um, and that is something that it shares with comic book crossovers. But I think the I think the extent to which there's a a difference is probably smaller. And I think because of that, I think, you know, an Infinity War or, or an Endgame or, or even like a Civil War or whatever, um, it can be how much it does the character stuff, if, if, if it's the character stuff you're talking particularly about, and how it does it can be played along very similar terms to the individual films that kind of go into more depth. You know what I mean? It's like I, th- I think they sort of... Um, 
how they present the characters and how they do the character work, it doesn't need to change so much for the for the big event movies. Whereas I think with big event comics, they're kind of your big summer crossover events. I think they have to play things in much broader strokes. And I think also you get something like a Civil War, for example, which is Mark Miller coming in because Mark Miller's a big name in comics doing a seven issue miniseries where he's allowed to play with the toy box of Marvel, but he hasn't been writing ongoing Marvel stuff at the time. Um, So you'll get one, the characters will just generally be treated in broad strokes. And if it's Mark Miller, they'll be treated in particularly broad strokes. (laughs) Um, But also a lot of stuff in it will end up running counter to what's going on in the comics at the time. Because what matters is bringing in a load of readers for this big event thing, some of which you hope will will stick around. <laughs> the thing about Civil War that springs to mind is that there is a Daredevil throughout all of Civil yeah. War, but it's not actually <laughs> Matt Murdock, it's Iron Fist posing as Daredevil. Yeah, because at the time in the comics, Daredevil was in prison and Iron Fist was posing yeah. as him. Civil War never makes clear that that Daredevil is um, uh, Danny Rand. <laughs> Yeah, I read that. That's a crossover. I read. I've got to be honest. I think Civil War is actually probably one of the better ones. Like there are bits, there are bits of it that are. <laughs> I mean, it works as a self-contained story, doesn't it? So yeah, that's yeah. the thing. It works as a self-contained story. It feels quite abbreviated at times. Like there are massive time and plot gaps, and because it's Mark Miller, the characterization is off. But mm. it has a big philosophical idea at the center, and it actually resolves it by the end of the story. <laughs> And like possibly to the detriment of all the other books that had to then figure out how to deal with that. But in itself, Civil War probably is one of the better ones. <laughs> mm. I, I think I think the better crossovers generally, certainly from a DC point of view, tend to be the ones that are crossovers within a particular line of books. So again, you know, we've talked about them, we've had episodes, uh, bonus episodes dedicated to them, but Death of Superman and Nightfall. In both cases, I'm a big fan of those. And it helps that when I read them and, you know, they're kind of a big part of my my comics reading background. But, um, you know, what those are about are about bringing together the the Superman books and the Batman books, uh, uh, you know, respectively, and telling the big event story that those individual series were leading up to. And in some cases, drawing in stuff, you know, from elsewhere in DC that they might not have usually done. But I think when there's a bit more focus to them, um, is when they're better. I think the yeah. I think the big summer. Let's just throw everyone in a big storyline, um, and that you know that run of ones that Marvel had, kind of particularly after Civil War, Ugh, yeah, um, Secret Invasion, and Siege, Fear Siege. itself, yeah. Um, they're just yeah. I think it, I, that's the kind of thing that just led people to this kind of tiredness of these crossovers because the stories themselves were never particularly interesting, and I don't think they tended to do a lot with the characters that made you kind of come out the other side thinking it was particularly worthwhile. Do they tend to do much that's out of continuity? Is there, is, is there ever like big comic crossovers where, you know, you could bring together the entire Marvel universe, but not set it within the continuity. So you don't have to interrupt all of the individual stories that are going on. Not really. Cause you know, once you, once you take something out of continuity, it tends to say to readers, this isn't important. Mm. So people just don't it buy it. It doesn't DC though, does it? Like a lot of the DC stuff that you guys have recommended on, on, on. The DC podcast. has a tradition of doing Elseworlds, but it's also, it's mm. not, you know, Elseworlds aren't, aren't big events. They're, they tend to be one-off stories. One, one thing that actually, uh, that probably does kind of fit the bill a little bit in terms of if you're looking for a comic that's, 
doing something a bit like Endgame does. I've actually just just started reading them after not reading them for years, which is the uh, DC's Injustice prequel comics, the 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 that are set in the alternate universe of the Injustice uh, video games. Um, and they tell the story of the five years leading up to the game, and the and the story is basically that Superman becomes a despotic a dictator ruling Earth, and he has some of the heroes on his side, and he has some of the heroes led by Batman against him. And in terms of being a, you know, what those comics do is it is one big, long, massive story involving basically every single hero and villain in the DC universe. So in terms of doing that kind of story, um, they're a pretty successful version of that. And they're also pretty good because they they got a writer called Tom Taylor who writes really good character moments. So even though the premise is pretty bad uh, and, and like the inciting event for how Superman starts to go bad is like quite infamously bad and has been kind of shared, you know, like <laughs> memed online as a moment because it's a really bad premise. But from that has spun out a pretty decent comic that actually is full of really good character moments and, you know, it is concerned with what's going on in the entire world of DC characters, even though it's an alternate universe and an alternate future um, as it goes along. So uh if yeah if you if you want to read something like that that's maybe not a terrible example right well i think we've answered andrew's question but mostly i've seen the opportunity for a segue here so let's move over to the news uh they're making an avengers video game you guys (laughs) yeah debuted at e3 and i think the the best comment that i saw about this online was this is a healthy reminder that outside of the mcu the avengers are still square as hell (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was my my friend josh (laughs) (laughs) he's not wrong i mean the 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 cast because they've done what they did in the spider-man uh game which is cast actors and then 3d model the actors it it looks like if your dad and his friends were uh, a superhero team like it but it doesn't look i mean it doesn't have any of the charm of the spider-man game even from the from the trailers the spider-man game had charm and it felt well it's made by a much smaller studio so they don't have the budget and they don't have the experience so i can sort of understand that the question is for me is why did they let a small studio take on the avengers game well it's it right it's weird isn't it because when you think about it these big franchises it in days gone by would you know all the superhero movies of the 2000s had video game adaptations and if they didn't have their own adaptation there was like you know, a, a franchise with that character ongoing already over in games. The MCU, which is this behemoth, has spawned, what, two unsuccessful games very early on? <laughs> it was a Thor game and an Iron Man game, and neither There are a couple of Iron good. Man games. Yeah, but, they, I mean, but since then, nothing. Yeah, I think they stopped just after Iron Man 2. They went, ah, that hasn't quite worked out. <laughs> Yeah, and I wonder if, whether it is it just protecting the brand or what? Like, are they just worried that, like, like, we know we can do movies, we can't do games. But then they let this happen, and it just, it just, you kind of think, like, well, if you're going to do the Avengers, maybe make it, but it's not going to be the movie Avengers. Make it really different, not make it the same team, but shit. <laughs> They've explicitly done the movie team, thus opening themselves up to comparisons of, oh, it's not as good as the movies. Like, if you're going to do the Avengers, why not do the Avengers like the throw in all those characters? Yeah. Like do what Ultimate Alliance did and just put everyone in there because you can. So this is a game that none of us are ever going to play, right? <laughs> no, although I am looking forward to Ultimate Alliance 3 next month. <laughs> 
It's half the um, reason I bought a Nintendo Switch. I, it, it, it's just... It is irritating that they sort of not... It doesn't feel like they've learned the lesson of what's worked about the films, uh, which is to to effectively translate into that medium. It's a, it's almost a bit of a Watchmen situation. It's like, uh, you know, you, to just kind of try and recreate the films in a different medium rather than playing to the strengths of that medium, you know? Well, this okay, the Spider-Man game gets it, right? Because in the Spider-Man game, like all the best Spider-Man games, the fun is you have an open world, you can mm. swing around a Spider-Man, like you get the thrill of being Spider-Man. How are they going to do an Avengers game that replicates like mm. the specific thrill of being Captain America or Black Widow or whatever? Because they're all such different characters. Mm. Like you're never going to feel like you have that freedom of being a superhero. You're going to feel like you're doing missions with a specific, you know, power set at best. Yeah, yeah. But and and just yeah, just that you know the character design stuff does just like <laughs> yeah. um, it's not. Uh, I I I think I think they've misjudged what would appeal to people there. And again, Spider Man I think gets away with it probably because, as you say, you know, sort of the the game mechanics are so good. I think I think I think you can have a, a realistic and in inverted commas Spider Man because you you want to like be immersing yourself in in that open world New York. But I ju- I do just have still have a problem with games generally um, in terms of games that just that just go for realism because they never. They always feel like they're quite realistic at the time, and then they date worse than a game that is stylized. And you know, so you know, if, if this had gone for a kind of comic booky kind of look, one, it would just look more exciting and more colourful, and two, you know, in a few years you wouldn't be looking back and going, "Oh God, that looks really uncanny valley." <laughs> it's you know? notable that when I play Spider Man, I like playing the comic costume, like the one that cell shaded. <laughs> oh, they actually got like a cell shaded costume in it. Yeah. It looks really cool. I wish they'd done the whole game in that style. Yeah. See, you know, if 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 the Spider-Man game looked like Spider-Verse, you know, mm. that would be amazing. And if this <laughs> Avengers game looked like Spider-Verse, that would be amazing. Spider-Verse, that's a good crossover. <laughs> it is. The film we should have given best movie of 2018 to. <laughs> no, I meant the comic, but yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> also good. Yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah. It's a good crossover. Spider-Island is a good crossover as well. But again, character specific. Yep. Okay. Um, Let's actually move on to the movie and TV <laughs> news and not just the, the little video game corner here. Uh, there's quite a lot of news because we've missed too many sodes, so let's try and move through this at pace, guys. <laughs> Shall we do the comics news first? <laughs> no, let's do that last. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll start off. Um, How May Call It Sarah has been announced to be directing Black Adam. I don't know if you guys... Uh, are familiar with his work. He's coming off directing Jungle Cruise, which The Rock had starred in. No, it's due to star in. It's uh, Dwayne Johnson, Emily Blunt, Jesse Plemons at the top of the call sheet there. And um, Jack Whitehall, which we can all look forward to. Um, <laughs> but um, How May Call It Sarah is a director I've liked for quite a while. He he directed uh, House of Wax in 2005, which has gained a bit of a cult following Orphan, which is great. Um, Nonstop, The Shallows, which is really, really good. He's a really good like uh, thriller director. Um, and Jungle Cruise looks like a step up budget-wise. And that's obviously gone well enough that they've handed him uh, Black Adam, which I, I, th- I don't think Shazam like destroyed the global box, box office, but I'm sure DC are confident that if you do a Black Adam movie with The Rock, that's kind of money in the bank anyway. And then you can bring it all together in a future instalment as well. Mm. So that that franchise keeps going. 
familiar with any of those movies, like the director? Looking forward to Black Adam. Never heard no. of never heard of it or them. <laughs> I just really, really want Black Adam to have its theme tune be the Black Adam theme tune, but with Black Adam, Black Adam, <laughs> right, because that's okay. all I can think about whenever I hear his name. And that's, um, that's Seb guaranteeing we can move through the news quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on? <laughs> I think we should. Yeah. Okay. New Gods, Ava DuVernay. Oh, come gods. on. <laughs> is being co-written by Tom King. It would be nice for the new gods to be written for a change. <laughs> this is this is DC's The Eternals, right? Yeah. Uh, certainly in terms of your interest levels anyway. <laughs> yep. But, I mean, I'm actually a shade more interested in new gods because, you know, Darkseid? At least Orion, yeah. like, that's a character. Yeah. Some of them actually have personalities. I mean, Big Barder and Mr. Miracle, great yeah. characters. All new gods. I mean... <sighs> Tom King. Where do we start with Tom King? Uh, <laughs> well, I, for one, I'm not going to criticise someone who was a former member of the CIA. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tom King has written some absolutely excellent comics in the last few years. Tom King has also started recently to write some quite bad comics, sometimes at the same time as writing good comics. Tom King is starting to feel a little bit like he might be a one-trick pony. Um, and I say this as someone who like absolutely loved the vision, absolutely loved Omega Men. I liked Mister Miracle a lot more than a lot of people seem to. Um, I enjoyed a lot of his Batman run before it. I mean, it, it's just going round in circles at the moment. It's it's really ridiculous how much that. Like moment to moment, there's great moments in it, but they're also like I've read these great moments when you did them about two years ago. Uh-huh. Um, it's I I'm not saying he's a bad writer, although Heroes in Crisis was abysmal uh, i am concerned that he has reached the limit of what he can do in superhero comics which is to tell one very particular type of story about superheroes being a bit traumatized and i've yet to see him write a superhero story that is about a superhero actually going out and being a superhero everything is really internal like i think maybe omega man is probably the closest to that actually um, like Omega Men is the only one I think has really felt like an adventure. Um, everything else is really internal, and that can be a really good read in a six or twelve issue miniseries. Um, it's proving to be, as I say, a bit of a wearying read over the course of a seventy-five issue run on Batman. So, from a movie point let's of view, let's take that back to yeah, yeah. Let's take that back to New Gods. So, yeah, that one trick. Does that one trick that you see from him at the moment feel like? it can be applied to new gods as a concept. <laughs> I mean, he already has in Mr. Miracle. That's the thing. He's, right. he's he's already written a comic very heavily about the new gods for 12 issues that I thought was excellent. But that's probably my other concern is, what else has he got to say about the new gods and Mr. Miracle that he didn't pretty comprehensively cover? Because Mr. Miracle ended up being about a full-on war between apocalypse and new genesis and and like it it resolved it was do you know what i mean it's like it 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 wasn't just one small part of a story it was a a big story was going on in the background of that comic does he need to have anything new to say or can he not just take that to the big screen because i think i think the amount of people in the New Gods audience who have read Mr. Miracle is going to be pretty small. True. Mr. Miracle, the comic, would not work as a movie. No. I mean, it really, really wouldn't. (laughs) But I imagine that if if he can take his shtick and put it on that, 
I mean, I, I mean, look, I, it's 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 interesting, and I, I and I I like the idea of looking to the comics for people to work on this stuff who aren't named Jeff Johns. Um, so <laughs> you know, I I think it you know on a kind of surface level, and particularly if you'd said this like a year ago rather than now, saying DC are hiring Tom King to write a movie that is connected to a comic that he's been mm-hmm. writing really well, I'd be like, yes, fantastic. I'm just a little bit. I'm starting to get a bit tired of Tom King. The thing is, like, we we can't tell realistically. We can't tell how good a movie writer he's going to be from his comics. No, so, not. in a way, in that sense, it's a bit of a non-story. Like for me, the concern that I have is that he's done this thing that a lot of new comics writers do, which is he comes out with one really great thing, and so they put him on something high profile. That's really good. So they put him on two things high profile. Then they put him on three or four things high profile, and suddenly it's clear, like. He's just said yes to everything and has run out of ideas and time and everything suddenly suffers. I imagine he's going to probably stop writing comics to work on this movie pretty much full time. And if he doesn't, I think everything's going to suffer for it. I, I mean, I, the one thing I wonder is how involved he's going to be in The New Gods. He, he's co-writing apparently with Ava DuVernay. Ava DuVernay comes from a PR background and... There's a reason, I mean, yes, some of her movies have been good. Let's not talk about A Wrinkle in Time. Um, but she, you know, she she's she comes from PR and she, the reason that she exploded as much as she did is that Selma was excellent and she knew how to sell herself. And I wonder, as, as some of her background in PR, going, hmm, I'm right, I'm working on New Gods for DC. How do I get some kind of comics level street cred on this? Tom King. So I wouldn't be surprised if he does a pass and then, you know, that's it. See you later. Or he advises or whatever. Or he comes up with the story but doesn't actually write the script. Yeah, maybe. So we'll we'll see what happens there. But for the moment, it appears like Tom, Tom King is co-writing The New Gods. Um, we'll move on now to uh, James. I think this is, this is one for you. <laughs> Taika Waititi is directing a live-action version of Akira. Yes! He's, that he says is going to be an adaptation of the manga rather than the anime. So at any point in the previous sort of 15, 20 years, if you had said to me, live action Akira, I'd have gone, don't even waste your time. It's going to be stupid. Like, let's just move on. Well, and every time in the past 15 or 20 years that they were talking about doing it, it was here is a director that's going to do an American remake of Akira. Yeah. And I, I, I remember the last time it gained serious traction. I'm sure Zac Efron was rumored for Tetsuo. <laughs> yeah the thing is like the anime is so good trying to remake the anime is stupid so it's a really good idea to go back to the to the source manga like taika waititi is a director who i think has the at least based on thor ragnarok he's got a kind of grasp of the visuals that that would be arresting enough to compete with the anime so that's good too and you know battle angel Elite proved that you can actually adapt an anime and have it turn out good so, based on what's happened this year in that announcement, I'm actually sort of like, yeah, why not? Let's do Akira. And he said that he's going to he's gonna cast, you know, it's going to be Asian actors who are casting the roles here. So, that's positive. I, I, I'm a bit mixed on Akira. I've, I've, I've only seen the anime, James, and, you know, I kind of feel like probably what I would have needed was a Ghost in the Shell style 
debrief from you on <laughs> on how I was supposed to be reading it and how to understand it because it's not it's not it's not I, I'm anime is not a medium that I'm really familiar with so any you need to watch it. you need to watch Neon Genesis Evangelion that's do you know what that's on my list actually good because I know because I've seen all the conversations around the series coming back to uh, net, is it? I think it's it's going on to Netflix. It's on Netflix it's, now. It's on I watched. Netflix. I rewatched the first episode yesterday. I'm going to watch an episode a day and really savor it. I feel like I've seen it all just just through my Twitter timeline talking about it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but Akira, I, I don't know. Like, I, I kind of, I yeah. The what the world looks incredible, but it it left me a bit cold. And after, and at, and at the end when it all starts going nuts, it was just a bit too much for me um, but yeah I, I you know i can i can see how taika waititi would work for this hopefully he will stay a bit more invested in the action on this rather than just leaving it to the yeah, second unit. i mean p- part of the problem with ghost in the shell and akira is that they're sort of these formative works of cyberpunk that i mean you know 25 30 years on have sort of lost their relevance in terms of the stories they're telling and the the you know anxieties that drive them it's not to say they can't be, you know, molded into something relevant, but I think their popularity is very much driven by that sort of pre-internet rise of computing, you know, fear about the changing world. And it's hard to sort of plug that into modern life where we're all a lot more comfortable with the digital world and the role yeah. technology plays in our day-to-day existence. Well, we'll see what happens with that. It's due in 2021 if Psycho YTT, uh, you know, does see it through. Um, and that probably takes him off the docket for any Marvel movies in the next couple of years, I would imagine. Quite um, Move on to uh, another film that we talked a lot about in the past and things had gone kind of quiet. This is Spawn. Now, do you remember <laughs> Jeremy Renner was cast? Jamie Foxx was cast? It was all, you know... We, <laughs> Todd we McFarlane were... was going to direct... Yeah, and Todd McFarlane gave an interview and has kind of talked about how the project has kind of stalled and that there are, you know, some of the financiers have disagreed on the script and he's said, you know, I still want to make it, but if they make, if I get told I need to make huge changes to it, I'll just walk away. And to be honest, if you, you know, I feel like we've been talking about that for like a year, maybe. Mm. So if it was this time last year that Jamie Foxx and Jeremy Renner, like how long do actors stay attached? Like, and when you do get going, is their availability going to be all right? And we we all know Jeremy Renner's got a very important TV show he needs to make now. (laughs) Um, I kind of feel like Spawn's not going to happen. And I don't know how, how upset the world would be about that. I I think the thing thing about it is that I think, I think McFarlane is maybe... And, and, you know, I can't blame him for that because it's his baby, but I think he's maybe overthinking or overselling sort of the, the pull that Spawn as a brand has. It's like, if they do a new Spawn movie, there will be people who will go, oh, I remember Spawn from the 90s. And if it's got Jamie Foxx in it, they'll go, oh, it's Jamie Foxx in a superhero movie. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't last time. <laughs> but if the people who are having to put up the money for it um, are not convinced by what yeah. he's doing with it um he he as a brand and spawn as a brand are not really strong enough f- i think for him to sway them i think it's you know uh, they they're, they're going to be looking to make concessions to try and sell this to an audience that will largely be unfamiliar with it so yeah if if and and you know and he is perfectly entitled you know absolutely 100% entitled to turn around and go i do not want to make and release a spawn movie that is not my vision of spawn that is totally fair and that's totally his prerogative 
but I think it means the movie's not going to happen. Well, remember though, it wasn't going to be like a big budget movie. It was going to be a, a Blumhouse, Blumhouse movie. Yeah, but it? you still need some money to make a movie. Don't yeah, you? yeah, yeah. But I think Spawn is still big enough that if the budget is low, you know, it could do Hellboy money easily. I wonder whether they. Well, I, you know, I wonder whether <laughs> which they, Hellboy. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. quite. But I wonder whether they want to sell it to a streaming service first. I wonder whether they want to have kind of like the distribution locked in beforehand. Because yeah, I I'm not convinced that in in 2020 that Spawn on the big screen would be any kind of draw without really fantastic reviews. You've got a first time director there in Todd McFarlane. <laughs> You know, Jeremy Renner and Jamie Foxx, fine, but they, I, I mean, they're not going to open your movie automatically to 50 million plus. I, I feel like the problem with Spawn is that the, like, the themes are so big that if you're not doing, if you're trying to do a self-contained movie, it, it struggles to be relatable. It's similar to Hellboy in that sense, in that, like, the, the concept behind the character is, like, rooted in a war between heaven and hell. How would you turn that into a into an hour and a half, two hour movie without making it sort of too much to deal with in one go? Like what you want is a TV series, like a, a decent budget TV yeah. series version of Spawn would make a lot more sense. No one, I still think no one would watch it. Oh, probably, but yeah. <laughs> at least you know six to eight episodes on Amazon Prime. There's precedent for that format being attractive to people. It the 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 worry for me is if it, given the Bloomhouse involvement, those guys know what they're doing. If they're saying, <laughs> yeah, if they're saying right no, now, they're saying you know this isn't in its current form isn't going to work. Then I kind of believe, <laughs> yeah, especially because the other person, Todd McFarlane, has a long history of not knowing what he's doing. <laughs> um, just since we mentioned it, and just because I hadn't looked it up, uh, I just went to see what the uh, worldwide box office take for Hellboy that we still haven't covered yet is uh, does anyone know how much it made at the worldwide box office <laughs> joe do you want to guess and then i'll I'm guess gonna, i'm gonna guess maybe like 80 90 oh that's optimistic i was gonna say i was gonna say 35 46 million against a budget of 50 worldwide worldwide yikes it, it, that was about half and half between us and the rest of the world 20 odd in the us 20 odd in the rest of the world <laughs> and it had a marketing budget yeah yeah <laughs> oh dear uh yeah well i mean there's not many of our listeners then that are devastated that we didn't cover it um (laughs) (laughs) uh just quickly uh before i move on to a little bit of casting stuff um kevin feige was talking about um so he's he's on the promotion tour for spider-man far from home and uh he got asked questions about venom because there were rumors going around that venom would be potentially a villain in a third spider-man movie and he said that isn't the case but he was asked, you know, do you think it's likely that it'll turn up in the same movie? And he said, well, Sony has both of those characters. I would be surprised if they didn't put them together. And I think that is businessman Kevin Feige, you know, with some <laughs> inside information going, yeah, they would be n- nuts not to, wouldn't they? Um, so whether that's whether that's Tom Holland's Spider-Man, I don't know. I'm still, still slightly fearful of all of that, of what they would do with Tom Holland outside of the MCU. Mm. Uh, but the fact that Kevin Feige is saying that makes me, for the first time, think, "Oh, right, okay, maybe, maybe we do need to brace ourselves for that in some form." Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine they'll let Tom Holland be in both universes simultaneously. I can see them 
Marvel, it it's not up to them. It's Sony. It's whether Sony wants to do it or not. Well, do we? Well, that's what I mean, though. Like, if Sony put Tom Holland in Venom, they're not going to be like, oh, let's have him in our Marvel films too. They're just going to be like, oh, maybe not. Let's just put him in the background for now. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they had a completely different Spider-Man in the Venom thing and you know multiversed it. I can think of one person that'd make happy. <laughs> or Tom or Tom Holland playing a different version of Peter Parker. Is that possible? Mm, probably not. That that feels slightly confusing, but I mean maybe get Andrew Garfield or Tommy Maguire back. No, because as as we've discussed, <laughs> Tommy Maguire has to play Norman Osborn in the MCU. <laughs> And Andrew and Andrew Garfield should not be let near that suit ever again. <laughs> I've seen like an, an increasing like thing on so, uh, social media. People like will talk say like, "Oh, Andrew Garfield." It's like I, I really liked his Peter slash Spider Man. Like, yeah, I, it's no. a shame that the movies around him were so bad. Like, get a fuck. Yeah, he he was part of the reason those movies were bad. <laughs> I like Andrew Garfield as much as anyone in movies that are not amazing Spider Man movies. Like, and I don't want to blame him entirely, but if you're saying, "Oh, I liked the Peter character in those bad movies," I don't know how you, I don't know how you watch those movies, think they're bad, and go, "But I like Peter." Yeah, those Mm -hmm. movies are bad because Peter is bad. Like, some of it is his performance, a lot of it is the writing and direction, but there's no good Peter Parker stuff in those films. I think it's it is literally just dude had chemistry with his co-star who he was dating in real life like that's that's the extent of what i can say works about those movies those two actors were good together yeah yeah okay um a little bit of casting news before we move on to tv uh benicio del toro is heavily rumored to be the villain in suicide squad 2 um i like benicio del toro i kind of i unless Unless, uh, well, I can't, hmm. here's, here's the thing. I can't, I feel a little bit tired of Benicio Del Toro in movies, especially in antagonist roles. Uh, like I, I've got a bit bored of him in recent years, but James Gunn letting him completely off the leash actually is something that I could be interested in. And like thinking back to what James Gunn did with him last time as the collector, that was weird and fun. Hey, we're going to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Um, are, are Sounds guys... like we may not agree on what <laughs> what we have to say about him, but fair enough. Um, are you guys looking forward to Suicide Squad two? Does Venicia del Toro in it help? Nah, it depends who he's playing, doesn't it? Um... Oh wait, I did see this. <laughs> I probably should have read it. <laughs> I mean that that would that would that would help with with making a bit of prejudgment. Yeah. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see if I can Google it quicker than you. Uh, the general. The general. Yeah. I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> He's a general. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, is it? It oh, right. It's somebody oh. who has been on TV before. Uh, do you remember Clancy Brown as General Eiling in the Flash in the first of season? I, I remember every Clancy Brown performance ever. That's who the general is. He's General Eiling. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> that's. I mean, that's they. they oh, if they'd have said Clancy Brown was going to be the villain, I think I'd be more interested. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so Benicio Del Toro, uh, potentially the villain in Suicide Squad 2. Um, we're going to do a, a quick bit of uh, TV corner now, um, and it's it's all DC stuff that we're going to talk about. Uh, the first thing is that Swamp's Thing debuted, and then it got cancelled, like, straight away. Um, James Wan, who was executive producing the show, kind of posted on social media saying he was baffled by it. 
But since that happened, so I think it was like it had aired two episodes and was that it was then like leaked that it was cancelled and eventually DC confirmed that that was correct. Even though like the reviews had been pretty good and I, I mean, I can't imagine they had too much of an idea on, you know, whether the whether the viewership was awful at that point, but I didn't get the impression that it was. Um, but yeah, it was cancelled straight away and a, and a report emerged on Deadline not long afterwards saying that um, in the wake of the acquisition by AT&T, Warner Brothers were re-evaluating DC Universe alongside a lot of other things that they were looking at internally. And I think basically the crux of this is if every studio is going to have their own streaming platform, is DC cutting its legs out? Oh, sorry, is Warner's cutting its legs out from under itself by having this DC thing separate? See, I I actually saw a report that said that the reason this had happened, and again, this must be strictly rumour, which is, so I don't know how much stock to place in it. It was pretty widely reported. This. Yeah, yeah, but mm. that the, there were some tax breaks being given for film, where, wherever they were filming, Florida or whatever. Uh, North Carolina. North Carolina, there you go. Um, that had been miscalculated, basically, and it turned out they weren't getting as much money back as they thought. So they just yeah. went, well, we can't afford it anymore then, so cancel it. Yeah, which 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 is potentially true. I just thought it was interesting with this deadline article surfacing at the, uh, around the same time. That, and, you, and, you know, like a tax break... That you know a miscalculation and going oh it's not it's not going to be as profitable to us as we thought it was. I mean this is a this is a show on a streaming service like that tax break probably has to be pretty big that they've missed out on. I think it for, was. From yeah, the it was. Of, it, apparently, it was in the region of fifty percent. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, DC Universe has always seemed like a little bit of a strange thing. It's odd that it's not being rolled out internationally. You know, it's still not available to us here in the UK. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see it go away. <laughs> no. I mean, DC are doing some odd things with their branding at the moment, generally. So, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> hmm. Uh, we will get to that in just a second. Um, next up is Seb's trailer corner. Seb, there were tra- <laughs> uh, there were trailers for The Boys and Pennyworth that debuted um, since we last did news on the podcast, and you wanted to talk about both of them. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just do my impression of the Pennyworth trailer. Core blimey, governor, apples and pears. I'm gonna. I'm a former former soldier, and I'm gonna do some security for this billionaire. That's basically the Pennyworth trailer. Now listen, Seb. That is Jason Fleming's real accent, and you should not make fun of it. <laughs> if Jason Fleming was playing Alfred, I would be way more interested yes. in this show. God, yes. Um, <laughs> I don't understand what happens to British actors in American TV shows, even when those American TV shows are shot and set in the UK, (laughs) which Pennyworth (laughs) is, but my lord, Jack Bannon's accent in this trailer. Um, Couple it with Paloma Faith doing a northern accent as a villain called Bet Sykes. Um, Bet Sykes? Apparently a spirited, sadistic, sharp-tongued woman, Uh, but but it's Paloma Faith doing a northern accent. Why would you make Paloma Um, Faith do a northern accent when her own accent is so ridiculous in itself? I don't know. Uh, But this looks, I mean, you know, you don't want to judge too heavily based on one trailer, Um, but bearing in mind that this is directed by, (laughs) the the pilot is apparently directed by Danny Cannon, and I think it could turn out to be the worst comic book related thing that Danny Cannon has ever made. Danny Cannon, for those who don't know, is the director of the Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd movie. <laughs> um, I, ju- I mean, you know, I could be wrong. Uh, it might turn out to be brilliant. I think this trailer makes it look like an absolute train wreck. 
Um, I don't understand why it's got any connection to Batman or, or the Waynes or Alfred. It's just a program about um, a, a British guy um, being a work, doing security for a bill for an American billionaire in London. But this is this is what I wanted to talk about. Right, people talk about superhero fatigue on the big screen. It is so much more of a scourge on the small screen and of like these. These kind of low-level sci-fi-ish show budgets, you know, like like stuff like Krypton and Pennyworth. The fact that you can't move on any any network in the US for some kind of superhero-related TV show, whether it's the Marvel stuff or the DC stuff or like something that is vaguely connected to a comic that is an adaptation of some comic in name only, like it just it just feels like. They're just using comics as an IP farm, and it doesn't matter what the comics are. The IP a lot of the time doesn't have well, exactly cachet. Yeah, and it's just it's almost as if I, I would be interested to know. Like, is it cheaper to get the rights to a character that's owned lock, stock, and barrel yeah. because it was a work for hire creation at DC or Marvel than it is to pay somebody for an original idea and have them own it? Because that seems to me the only reason for doing something like Pennyworth or Krypton, which is like a, you know, pretty, from the sound of it, generic sci-fi thing that, yes, has brought in some Superman and DC characters. But it's just, I just, I just don't get why these things are based on comics. What I think is it's not the... It's cheap. It's that they go, if we say this is connected to Superman, we get a built-in audience. Like, you know, 20% of the people who care about Superman will come and watch Krypton just because it's it says, like, from the world of Superman on the side of it. But, mm. but like, why is why is Kobe Smulders starring in a, a by-name adaptation of Stumptown when Kobe Smulders could be starring in an original, you know, police procedural? Yeah, that's a better question. And like you know, something like Pennyworth, just you know, for all of the for all that I might and we might point and laugh at, at Gotham, like Gotham <laughs> had an audience. Gotham was a successful show that a lot of people really liked, and it did what it was doing, and it existed in its own little corner of things, and people liked it. And it seems to me that Pennyworth is trying to go after the Gotham audience, lock, stock, and barrel. Yeah, absolutely. But if I was a fan of Gotham, I'd be looking at Pennyworth and going. I don't want this. I liked Gotham. I want more Gotham. I don't want this show that has effectively replaced it. Well, no, if you... Okay, so if you have a TV show, one of which is about, like, a former special special forces guy who does some security for a billionaire in London, you go, so what? Same show, costs the same money. This one's connected to Batman. Like, 50% more people come and watch it. That's literally all they give a shit about, isn't it? I wonder if that is working, though. Like, well, yeah, we'll find out, sure depending on how Pennyworth like does. <laughs> I hope it doesn't work because I'm getting sick of it myself. But <laughs> and Seb quickly on the boys. Oh, so there was a full trailer for the boys, and actually, similarly on accents. Like I don't know, maybe it's been confirmed somewhere whether Carl Urban is playing Billy Butcher as a Cockney or as a New Zealand or Australian. Um, I really hope it's the latter because if he's supposed to be playing him as a Cockney, uh, that is not some good accenting from Carl Urban. It's a, it's a, it's. It's a retrograde step from what he's doing in Ragnarok. Um, I wasn't super impressed by this trailer. I like since that first bit of promo for the boys where they played up on the corporate superheroes angle. The more and more they've shown of it, kind of the less interested I've got. And this trailer, it has a really cringy bit in the middle with with Butcher making a joke about the Spice Girls, and then the second half of the trailer plays out to wannabe. 
and it's just and you know <laughs> that's that's uh, you know something that's a direct result of the film that we're going to talk about and the influence that that film has had on things um but it's just uh, i mean it, it you know it looks like it's got concepts from the comic and it's and it's going to be about what the comic's about um but it just looks it all looks very um i don't like the kind of the look and the color palette of it um and i'm not sure it's going to be very interesting and honestly this isn't just me turning against it because of the realization that it's the reason why the tick got cancelled <laughs> which it is <laughs> yeah, yeah but i know i i'd i'd like it to be good um you know i i for for its flaws i like the boys i'd like to see a good garth ennis tv adaptation because i wasn't that impressed by preacher uh i like um carl urban uh i just yeah not Sure, to be honest. I'm never going to watch this show. I can guarantee it. <laughs> never going to watch this show. It'll be even if you're going like, no, it's really good, honestly. I, just, I don't think I'm going to... Have you watched any more of season two of The Tick yet? Oh, yeah, I watched it all. I thought it was I thought it was good and uh, was in no way surprised that they cancelled that show. <laughs> um, Yeah. We're never going to find out about uh, Tyrannosaurus Rathbone and what was going on with his wacky chest creature. <laughs> um, I'm sure uh, there'll be a spin-off comic in 2032 that will tie it all up <laughs> um, talking of something else that's ending uh, we're going to end the news with the news that Vertigo Comics is uh, is th- th- that imprint is ending right DC uh, just it's done for like the 50th time I mean this uh, time it's actually going in name as well like it, it was already gutted sort of editorially but now it's now it's disappearing in name and being replaced by three different well all of DC's imprints are being folded into three strands which are called like you know uh, what is it Black Label DC Zoom is it yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I like how they're 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 keeping Black Label and ditching Vertigo. So Vertigo has got name recognition for thirty years as the brand that brought you Sandman and Preacher and Lucifer and all of these wildly successful and influential comics. And Black Label is the brand that bought you Batman's penis. And Black <laughs> Label is the one that they folded Vertigo into, rather than vice versa. Does it matter ultimately now in twenty nineteen in comics that that name no longer exists? Well, there is a quite specific thing about vertigo going away that there is something that vertigo did differently to everything else at dc and i feel like i don't want to talk about it in detail on the podcast because i'm stealing someone else's observation <laughs> i was about to say you should probably go and listen to the latest episode of house to astonish <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yes it's it's all about creator ownership and rights and vertigo was unusual at DC and Marvel. Yeah, I mean, to be of, fair, DC haven't yeah. said that the creator owned deal is going away. And like, that's sort of the reason we have all these TV shows, like, you know, mm. Preacher being on Amazon Prime and not on a Warner service because it's not owned by DC, even though they published it. Mm. Yeah. But if that deal is indeed disappearing, that's bigger news than the name Vertigo disappearing because for years it's been like a huge deal that creators could get one of the two biggest comics companies to publish their ideas and still own them and if vertigo is gone it sounds like that chances as well so you know why the last man gone do you just go to image instead is that absolutely that's the only place you can go at this point Mm. interesting okay well i'm sure we'll i'm sure we'll talk more vertigo at some point in the future probably uh probably in (laughs) i mean not anymore we won't (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Although interesting, an interesting aside to that is that the movie The Kitchen, which is coming out soon, um, which is about a gang of sort of housewives who take over their 
uh, husband's organized crime business in New York, in Hell's Kitchen, indeed, um, was a Vertigo book. And so there's going to be a movie like with a Vertigo logo on the front, even though it, the imprint is just being shuttered. Fascinating. It's on the trailer. <laughs> Brilliant. Maybe that. Maybe they'll quickly <laughs> just. Maybe it'll be replaced with black label. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that was the extended comic book movie and TV news this week. We will pause now to take a listen to the trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy and be back with our spoiler-filled discussion very shortly. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Zandar. Check out the rap sheets. Drax, a.k.a. the Destroyer. Since his wife and family were killed, he's been on a rampage across the galaxy in his search for vengeance. Gamora, soldier, assassin, wanted on over a dozen counts of murder. Rocket, wanted on over 50 charges of vehicular theft and escape from lockup. What the hell? Groot, he's been traveling recently as Rocket's personal houseplant slash muscle. Peter Jason Quill. He's also known as Star-Lord. Who calls him that? Himself, mostly. He's wanted largely on charges of minor assault, public intoxication, and fraud. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know how this machine worked. Hey, hey, hey. That's mine. You son of a Hey! Take those headphones off right now! They call themselves the Guardians of the Galaxy. What a bunch of a holes. Right, guys, we finally got there. Guardians of the Galaxy. We are completing the MCU just in time for the end of phase three. I actually haven't seen this one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, we're going to have like a week where we're up to date and then uh, Far From Home is going to ruin it. (laughs) And then we'll be up to date again, but still. 
<laughs> so I wanted to start off with talking about this film by talking about the trailer that uh, our listeners will have just heard. Because yeah. this was this movie was an enigma for so long in its <clears> development. <throat> um, I'm not sure if we talked about this much on the podcast before, but the first time the three of us actually podcasted together was on um, my former podcast that I hosted, which was called Raging Bullshit. Which was basically, if anyone's ever listened to Five Lives Fighting Talk, was like a ripoff of that, <laughs> where we Love asked, yeah, we asked movie, we asked movie questions, and then like awarded points based on how good the answers were, um, and it was all a bit of fun. But like a recurring bit on that was like, I, I remember us talking about Guardians of the Galaxy a lot because it was just this enigma, and it was like, what well, the, and there's going to be a a character who's a talking raccoon who should voice the talking raccoon and that i was gonna like say that. that was the question wasn't it who should yeah, voice yeah. rocket raccoon yeah <laughs> and um i i remember being very attached to the idea of jason statham at the time but just it was it was more that like that marvel had announced this thing and it just seemed completely weird and nebulous and and like I, you didn't know what to expect or grasp onto I remember they cast Chris Pratt and I missed it in the news cycle, even though I was writing about movie news at the time, just because I'd been like not online that day. And it didn't seem like it had much of a, it it didn't seem like people were discussing it to the amount that you'd imagine that, you know, the lead of a new Marvel movie had been cast. And then this trailer turns up and Hooked on a Feeling starts playing and you've got Sarah Inowitz and you've got, um, You've got John C. Riley and that that whole like uh, that that lineup. The lineup that they cheated with because <laughs> <laughs> that's not how it is in the film. But yeah. well, it wasn't. It wasn't going to be in the film. And then the the trailer was so successful they shoehorned the scene into the into the. Oh right, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, because uh, because in the trailer, um, who's not there? Drax is so, there. Yeah, so in, Drax yeah, is there in, in the trailer. And he is yeah. there. In the and movie. also, it, they they you know they refer to Rocket as Rocket and not the code name. And, and and the trailer says they call themselves the Guardians of the Galaxy, which they don't at that point in the film. Yeah. So, yeah. And and crucially, <laughs> the the gag in that sequence with Peter uh, showing that you know winding up the middle finger, yeah. which is redacted because it was a Green Band trailer, yeah. is funnier <laughs> than the version in the movie when you can yes. see the when you can see Agreed. the action. It's like um, how bleeped swearing is almost always funnier than yeah. actual swearing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, so I remember watching that trailer for the first time. Um, I was working at Film 4 at the time with our former, uh, well, past podcast, past and future podcast, Michael Leader. Um, and I remember that, that trailer coming online and watching it and going, holy shit. That, like, just all of a sudden, I'm like, what is this movie? This is now my most anticipated movie of this year. Full stop. What is going on there? The like, just the sheer confidence that was on display for mm. this for this concept that felt like how how can you approach this with any confidence? You've got a raccoon and a tree and a bunch of characters that no one knows, and it's not connected to the rest of the stuff that Marvel have been doing. Your confidence makes no sense. And tied mm-hmm. tied with that, there was that poster, which was just like the the characters quite small on it with Guardians of the Galaxy, and then in massive letters, the I, I remember the um, tagline, "You're welcome." Right? Yeah. 
and people i remember some people going oh it seems so arrogant and i was like yeah no but that's the that's the genius of it, <laughs> yeah, it is that's this, the attitude <laughs> well it's a, well it, this arrogance and attitude from a movie that seems like it has no right to do it it, it, and it, and that actually, that that confidence actually, I mean, we'll talk about it. It, it runs through the movie, but I think I'd, I'd be interested to know if the the tag at the very end, and I'm jumping all the way to the end here, but the the Guardians of the Galaxy will return at the end of the film. Now they may have only decided to add that after the reception that the trailer got, but it is so indicative of the confidence that runs through, as you say, from that very first trailer. This is a film that basically knows that the only way to do what it's doing and to sell what it's doing is to be utterly confident about it. Yeah. And when you get to that end tagline, this film no you know this isn't Green Lantern like setting up a sequel that it's done nothing to earn. <laughs> this is a film that knows full well that when that ship takes off at the end of the film, every single person in the audience wants to see more of those characters and so it puts up that it's and it's it's like the end of Back to the Future. It's you know, you can imagine an auditorium standing up and cheering. And everybody wants him more. So when it puts up the words, the Guardians of the Galaxy will return, it knows that everyone watching it is going, thank fuck for that. (laughs) Can I be a bit of a dick here and just remind you how I first saw the trailer? (laughs) Which was in a room at Elstree Studios, having just interviewed the entire cast. (laughs) Because it was, I did a set visit for Comic Book Resources. Yeah. James has held an Infinity Stone. I don't know if yeah. he's ever mentioned it before. <laughs> <laughs> I've held Ronan's Hammer. I've held an Infinity Stone. I've held oh. Star-Lord's Blaster. Uh, I've stroked Rocket Raccoon's model. <laughs> you stroked uh, Rocket and held Ronan's Hammer, James. Yeah. yeah. On, the, on the same day. But it <laughs> and these are not the hammer. Yeah. And I met, um, met Karen Gillan in costume as Nebula when at a time when no one had actually seen what Nebula looked like. So... We weren't allowed to take photos, obviously. Mm. We don't talk about the fact that you've met Karen Gillan. <laughs> but, yeah. ba- ba- based on that at the time, like what what did you come out thinking? I came out sort of, I went in a bit, you know, unsure what to expect because it was pre any, I think they'd shown some footage at Comic-Con, but they hadn't put any footage online yet. And so we only had sort of secondhand reports about what it was. And so I didn't really know what to expect. And then I went in and I was like, holy shit, like I'm sitting in a room talking to Nebula and Gamora and and Star-Lord and like I was surprisingly excited because it's tough, right? Because set visits, no one thinks they're making a bad movie or they rarely think they're making a bad movie. But everyone seemed really sort of excited and optimistic and Dave Bautista especially was so like humble about the fact that he was making this movie. Like he told us this little story about how um, Mm. when he got cast he had to pull over his car and like weep openly because he was so pleased to to be in the film. (laughs) And like James Gunn seemed like a really cool guy who had the had a handle on what he was making you know and then obviously seeing the trailer and and having it be that confident and that good I was like I came out of the set visit like telling everyone who would listen like you have to get ready for this film because you're gonna fucking love it when it comes out and actually in my head I hyped it up so much that the first time I watched Guardians I was a bit sort of oh I expected it to be funnier and it took me a couple of watches until I was like no actually it is really good I was just I had unrealistically high expectations I I think that's fair because I do remember seeing it in the same screening as you uh, (laughs) the the last square we're just one of the one of the people really we're just like you guys. <laughs> I was you also know, there. <laughs> we get to do <laughs> we get to do set visits and yeah. have special screenings, but 
<laughs> no, but I think but the re- the reason why I mentioned that is obviously you know it was this film that just had this sense of anticipation. So seeing it in an environment like that where it is you know an enormous cinema full of people, a lot of whom have a lot of investment in in what's going on in front of them, and I I, I do kind of remember what you mean about. Um, slightly coming out and thinking well that was great but from the you know i had had such build-up and anticipation for it all of that definitely went away from like the second time i watched it onwards what i do remember about that screening i know we've talked about it before though is the the way that the opening credits meant that the entire rest of the film just had the audience eaten out of its hand even if some of us did maybe come out going oh you know i did want it to be a little bit funnier or, or whatever just from that moment, you just had a room full of people that were just enraptured because that moment, you know, the, obviously the music starts up and he starts dancing, and then that that moment when <laughs> yeah. the title drops—that's a great title. It's just you know, I've I've had very few like movie watching experiences like seeing that for the first time and just knowing it's almost like it almost makes you just sit back in <laughs> yeah, your seat. It's and go, okay, they've got it. Ah, yeah. Okay. I'm I'm <laughs> yeah, gonna I, enjoy I, this ride. I think I was the yeah. same as you. Like I, I remember I think it this was one of the things that we tried to sell our podcast on when we first got together. It's like, you know, you guys know your comments, Joe I mean Joe just wrote mm. the Guardians of the Galaxy review for film four and I famously said we used to stop you being able to do the comic book reviews <laughs> when I got employed at film four. Yeah. You were their comic book guy and then I walked in and I was like, Oh, can I do this? <laughs> Uh, so I got to write that. <laughs> I still managed to get into that screening, even though I didn't review. It I, so I remember, I remember watching the film, and in, in, and will say about that particular screening that we were all in, the sound was awful, and there was a couple of things that I missed, and that's that was when I went back and watched it for the second time. That I was like, like I I I didn't hear on the first viewing that nowhere was the hollowed out skull of a celestial, and I'm like, that that's one of those details that is. <laughs> so particular about guardians of the galaxy that it has that weird stuff in it and it and it cares that you know this is not they're not just showing up on a planet on another on another nameless planet to do this thing james gunn wants it to be a particular environment and wants you to you know kind of already know when you're going into that place oh that's that place right okay and that that screening didn't do that for me but i do remember i remember going going away um i was flying off on holiday the next day so i wrote my guardians of the galaxy review um pool poolside in a hotel in tenerife which uh, was, was <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> again we're just we're just other people um, you know, yeah. so that was fun um and yeah, I, I would say I liked the film from word one, from from you know viewing one. But it it does it is a movie that rewards multiple viewings. Yeah, it definitely got better the more, the more I watched it. And like now, now I think it's probably one of the few five star Marvel movies. Like it's just so complete mm. in everything it's trying to do and how it executes it. I think it's pretty much untouchable. What in the MCU? In, or yeah, in terms of in terms of its sort of aesthetic coherence where does it where does it land for you where's it land maybe top five you know i'm gonna just load up my letterbox and i'll tell you exactly where it lands <laughs> see i've got it at six now but i think my top six, it might I be think, six by now i yeah. think yeah i think all of the top six are like that's my top tier so it goes it's avengers avengers endgame iron man 3 black panther captain america the first avenger and guardians of the galaxy so those are the like that is the top tier for me and then it goes like doctor strange iron man winter soldier it is actually it's number seven but everything it's i've got it on four and a half stars but i think that's mainly because like my top five are iron man 3 avengers black panther infinity war and endgame (laughs) 
which are all five stars and it's not <laughs> quite as good as those but it's pretty good but seb i think of all of us you've always you've always been really high on this movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just looked at, okay, my, my letterbox is very out of date and it's in a list of general superhero movies where I've got it. But if you just pick out the MCU ones, uh, and this was, can I even see when I made this list? It was about four years ago. Um, so it was, you know, not long after seeing it. Uh, I only had Avengers above it. Um, I think now, because I had it above Winter Soldier then, I think if I'm looking at the the kind of the metric of I don't want to use the word objective because nothing's ever objective but objective quality it's not the top one uh, I think uh, certainly Winter Soldiers above it I think Avengers and Infinity War are probably above it so I think I think in terms of the ones I think are the best I think I probably have it number four uh, but it is my favorite it, it is still my favorite I just you know, I got super invested in this in terms of, you know, from like merchandise to the soundtrack to having an awesome mixed phone cover for about a year and a half, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, and you got so invested, um, you even liked Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I did, because it's really good. <laughs> Is it, though? <laughs> and I've actually, I've, I've, probably, I've rewatched that one like more times recently uh, than than this, and it, and it stands up well. That's why it's quite nice going back to this, because I mean, I'd watched it so many times in maybe the sort of three years after it came out and then kind of less so since then so it was it was really nice to actually go back to this and because i think i could have done the podcast without re-watching it i've seen it that many times um but it was definitely uh really enjoyable to do so because uh it's a really good film isn't it <laughs> i mean yeah it is i i, I think let's <laughs> let's try and do it chronologically because like you say that it starts so well that it would feel wrong to to like skip ahead and bounce around um and it you know we've mentioned this before on the podcast but i don't think we can talk about guardians of the galaxy without invoking andrew ellard for the second time in the podcast and his amazing tweet <laughs> yes. notes on this movie which you should track down uh where he points out that the movie is all about frogs because in the first scene with peter as a kid in that very like 80s amblin mode um you've mm. got peter in hospital his mum is about to die um i was listening to an episode of blank check recently and they were talking about like for peter's granddad that has to be the worst day of all time <laughs> dude's daughter dies and then within minutes he loses his grandson <laughs> and he's never seen from in the mcu again <laughs> <laughs> Poor fucker. When they, when they were bouncing through time in Avengers Endgame, Peter went, can we? <laughs> well, I guess he wasn't there to bounce through time. But it would, it would just be nice for someone to check in on that guy and say, it wasn't, dude, it wasn't your fault. <laughs> um, yeah, so you get you get that really ambliny opening uh, with, you know, uh, Laura Haddock in her second MCU role. Um, and it's it's atmospheric and it's eerie and like i said yeah it, it has that amblin vibe and then and and this the story that peter is telling to his mum is that he's he's been you know he's been punched by some other kid because they were trying to they were like torturing a, a frog right and he wanted to protect the frog <laughs> because that's what this guy's about it's just very shorthand for character like this is a kid who stands up for people when they're being bullied by someone bigger than them <laughs> and then you cut to morag which we recently revisited in avengers endgame and peter is dancing through uh, as you know he's going he's going on his mission he's clearly a he's clearly a different guy now in his in his long flowing red leather uh, leather coat um 
and there are these little space creatures around him and he is just indiscriminately booting them around and grabbing them and <laughs> using them as a fake microphone and Andrew the draws frogs. a parallel here to them being yeah to being space frogs this is a guy who between us seeing him as a kid and now has completely lost that sense of perspective and and this is kind of the movie is his arc to get back to get back to that kid he was at the start of the movie yeah and for me i've i i i've talked about this i think on the patreon episode where i talked about guardians and in probably uh the marathon that i did last year as well i think the art for peter in this movie is summed up in that line where he you know when he sends the message to to john c Riley later in the movie and he and he says mm. peter's message says that he may be an a-hole but he is not, and I quote, 100% a dick. <laughs> and as we yeah. find out later, Peter is very happy that he got his dick message. Um, <laughs> great, great dialogue. But that for me, that is, that's Peter's character arc here. I think he starts out this movie as 100% a dick and he ends it as an a-hole. Like he's not that 100% dick anymore. He's not that completely self-centered. Like, he's, dis- what he does is the inverse of Chris Pratt in real life. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was just about to say, he starts the movie as 2019 Chris Pratt and ends it as 2014 Chris Pratt. <laughs> but it's, you know, it is, it feels, because it feels like to me that he's not this, he's not this perfect guy at the end of the movie. He's not got back to this childlike innocence because he's never going to get back there. He's always going to be a, a little bit of an asshole, but like in a playful way. But he he goes on that journey to going. Oh yeah, I I, I want to defend the galaxy. I want to st- stand up for these other people. I want to stand up. I, you know, I've I've forged relationships in my life again for the first time, and I, I'm putting myself on the line for other people. And it's not it's not in a you know there are, there are no kind of ulterior motives because even throughout the movie, you know, like <laughs> when when he saves Gamora, and afterwards you're like he saved Gamora because he wants to bang her like that's the that's the reason or or like or or at least there's still a little bit of that there and by the time he gets to the end of the movie he is just full-on like i need to stop this bad dude from doing bad stuff because i mean i've just seen what he's done to the nova core and that's a that's a you know that's a solid character arc that's kind of a bit more of what i wanted from ant-man actually you know where they yeah you know when they when ant-man starts out and they go like oh he was a he's a villain you're like oh how bad a villain (laughs) yeah actually no he's not that much of a villain he was wrongly framed and he's really really he's a nice guy (laughs) whereas uh, like peter calls he is a dick at the start of this movie yeah i mean he's still a dick at the end of it right Mm -hmm. like he starts the next movie as a dick, but no, he's an a hole. That's what, that, that, that is. That, that is the <laughs> I distinction. feel like the distinction is very, very slim. <laughs> I don't, I, he he wouldn't be kicking frogs quite as much. No, that's that's true. At least he wouldn't be yeah. doing it when anyone could see. Mm. So yeah, so that that opening sequence, Seb, the 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 titles flash up. You have that the the kind of he gets the Infinity Stone. He has the battle with. Uh, Korath and we see the Milano for the first time and I I remember seeing the Milano and going that is a spaceship but if it were a Hot Wheels car like if I <laughs> if if I was eight years old I would do anything to have a little diecast model of the Milano it just and 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 that's kind of I think James Gunn flexing his you know showing off the color aesthetic for the first time and going like even on this kind of grim, rocky, cloudy planet, 
look at what this movie can look like. And then he gets mm. into the ship and here is his pink alien girlfriend. And Yeah, I mean, because I, th- I, I think this film, something that this film does really well. Okay, so th- this film is undoubtedly part of and a, and a major contributor to a kind of a, a milieu at the, at the moment of uh, films and properties that look so heavily to the past and to reference the past and all the stuff that the people who were making it loved as kids <coughs> stranger things i'm talking about you um and you know because there is just that that real kind of like fetishization of the the 70s and the 80s and of its culture and constantly sort of bringing that culture into stuff that's in the present now obviously guardians does do that um to an extent obviously there's lots of and in guardians 2 you get a fair bit of it in terms of referencing um you know kind of you know, there's, there's <laughs> yeah. the flash dance reference in this there's all the references in the second film he it does make reference to culture and obviously there's the soundtrack thing as well and you know this film again we'll talk about it a bit more later but this film is so responsible for using soundtracks in a certain way but i do think what you said there about the milano and i think a lot of what this film does i think this film is interested in doing what those films that james gunn and people like James Gunn loved like like doing it itself it's not just going oh he's got a spaceship and it's like you know a, a specific spaceship out of a film it's yeah it's not like hey he copied the spaceship out of Close Encounters or whatever like it's actually got its own thing yeah it's like here's something new that's designed to make kids feel the way I felt about that stuff when I was a kid I think that's what Guardians does so successfully is yes you know it, you can make comparisons you can make comparisons to things like Star Wars but I think it's it's yeah. comparable in a good way in the sense of it's it's it, it's being that for a new generation it's not just relying on the affection that a previous generation has for that stuff yeah because nothing bugs me more than movies that do the like oh let's insert a star wars reference here and there was you know at least two decades of cinema where like i mean i was re-watching toy story 2 the other day and like the direct star wars riffs in that movie e- even mm. like that in a movie that i think is pretty much a masterpiece i kind of like bristle when i see them because i'm like oh, not not again yeah. like it, uh, whereas this you know there is there is definite star wars inspiration in here you know there's there's probably you know everyone's talks about Rocket and Groot being Han and Chewie. And, it, and and there's, you know, there is that vibe, but it does, you're right, it completely feels like it, it is its own thing, even if it's taking inspiration from that. And the nostalgia and the, the 80s references, mm. they don't feel like, they, they feel like background notes rather than what anything's ever about. Mm. And also, crucially, it's... Well, and at least yeah, well, they do say It's all grounded in Peter Quill's character, because here's a guy who is, like, trying to grasp on to his former life on Earth, to his memory of his mum, and he does Mm. that through the music and the pop culture that he grew up on. Yeah, and and I I think it's crucial for the audience, because without that link to Earth that Peter gives you, this is a complete and total step into just, you know, making up sci-fi, otherworldly nonsense that, with the exception of some bits of the Thor films, the Marvel films haven't done. It's a really important link back to make Peter a recognisable Earth guy, even though he hasn't been on Earth since he was a kid. Right, for for me, the thing it speaks to is kind of his arrested development as well, in that, you know, he's a grown mm. adult and he has a spaceship and stuff, but really, he's just that kid. Like, he never, never got past that. Like, yeah. that's who he is. Hmm. Um, I mentioned the the 
the pink alien that is in the Milano when Peter's <laughs> his escape from Morag. Um, and I and I did what I do want to talk about this movie and I, I think the poor the, attitude the, to women. Well, yeah, and that 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 accusation that has been thrown at it, and I understand it. I I definitely understand it to agree a degree, and I think we talked. I think we were having this conversation on Twitter about Tony Stark in the build up to Endgame and about, you know, like, I, I think movies like this, certainly when you have a protagonist who is Tony Stark-esque or Peter Quill-esque, right, that the kind of the shorthand for like playboy kind of like asshole with a heart of gold is like this very like casual throwaway, you know, attitude towards women. So... You know, there, there, there are those jokes, you know, the joke early on that he, you know, forgot she was even there. Um, and I think particularly a lot of the things that, that rub people up the wrong way are the Drax jokes with Gamora. Mm. Right, so it's that one particular yeah, line. Yeah, and, and the, I think the particular line is what, when he refers to her as a whore. Like, I, oh, I love, I love all of you, even this whore. Yeah. And it's like, the joke is, the joke is good because you know the the joke is the payoff to what's happened with that character and his relationship with her and you know the fact that even when he's complimenting her and being nice about her he still you know says something horrendous about her the choice of word you know i would have i would have run that through another pass and i i am something else i you know i heard on someone else talking about this and it like so the re- the reason I think people think like it is it's so egregious is Drax is a guy who the joke is everything is literal so why is he calling her a whore and yes because, because she's, she's literally, literally not, not. And, yeah. I, and apparently there is a deleted scene that set up that joke and ah. I mean I don't know whether that's true or not so that might be me giving uh you know giving the more the film more credit than it deserves but that would make a lot of sense because. <sighs> Yeah, because then he's not using it as an insult. He's using it as a literal descriptor of her. Yeah, and that it, but yeah. that Gamora would obviously still take it the way she takes it. And you think about, you know, how would you remove that line from that scene because it's a, it's a crucial moment, you know, for 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 them as a team and for Drax kind of embracing them as a, you know, as a as a family unit. But yeah, the optics are bad, and I, mm. and you know what, I get it, and I, and I do think that when I walked away from this movie for the first time I was like oh God, I wish I wish Gamora had had more to do and I and I think probably mm. you know I think that the, the franchise is obviously keyed into her and Nebula and focusing in on on that relationship but that was that was the one thing that and I think this is one of the main frustrations for me with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 that when I watched this movie I went like who do who do I of that group want to see more of and I think Gamora was very high up there. I would have loved to have like dug into Rocket's origin in a sequel. Um, I would have loved to have you know seen more of uh, of Drax in the sequel. It, yeah, they, and this is in terms of like who would I want the sequel to focus on primarily? And when the si- when the sequel doubles down and focuses on Peter again, and the and everyone and everyone gets their like side plot, but it it gets eaten up by the least interesting one, which is Peter and his dad. Yeah, I think especially like superheroes and their dads has been done a lot. And specifically in the case of Peter's parentage, like you sort of don't care because like the relationship that matters Mm. is the one with his mother. And this film explores that in its entirety, right? Like Mm. you get everything you need to out of that. So yeah, that was, I I completely get those criticisms. um, And I think they're fair. Uh, But I will say that I think, 
Zoe Sultana does pretty fantastically with everything she gets in like throughout throughout her role in the MCU. Um, Karen Gillan, uh, can we talk about <laughs> it, it? In this, we definitely should because she's probably the MCU's most improved. Yeah, because in this film, she's—I mean, I—I I, I love her, but she is not very good in this film. And then excellent by the time you get to Endgame, it's—it's it's remarkable, isn't it? It's, you you, you practically—I mean, even even just compared with Volume Two, I mean, she's so—I mean, you know, the character is given more, but she's so much better in Volume Two than in this, and then in Infinity War and Endgame. But here, she's just she just she shouts and. Shouts not very convincingly. <laughs> like she's good in Doctor Who. She's great in Jumanji, which is admittedly a you know a pretty broad performance. But it's just it's strange that she's so off in this, and you kind of wonder where did that come from? Mm. Like was she being directed badly? Did she just not know the character? Like I mean, I, I don't think she's great, but I think the character also only has one note in this movie, and that she gets more to explore in the in the subsequent ones. Um. But yeah, I, I do remember first time around walking away from this movie and going, everyone was pretty great, but ooh, Karen Gillan. And that's, and that's you know, that's walking into the movie kind of like liking her from Doctor Who already. Yeah. Um, mm. Let's talk about someone else who I think, and, and I think when people point to uh, weaknesses in Guardians of the Galaxy, one of the first things that usually comes up is its villain and Ronan the Accuser. <laughs> mm. So again, Lee Pace, an actor that a lot of people like in, in most of the stuff that's not Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I like, really like him in... <laughs> I mean, uh, you can't really tell that it's him in this film anyway, can you? So No, although, again, going back to it now, I mean, and I think comparing it with uh, Captain Marvel where I was more disappointed with Captain Marvel because that I really did feel like you couldn't tell it was him. And actually, going back to it now, the character is still fairly paper thin, but I do think he works well with what he's got. And I think particularly, if nothing else, just for the moment at the end, um, he yeah. plays that really well. The, you know, the sort of the, the bafflement at the at the dance bit. And I, and I did, you know, I, I know him better now as Lee Pace than I did when I originally saw the film. And watching it now, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I recognise him in this in a way that I didn't in Captain think Marvel. I still the character's shit. <laughs> like, he's... <laughs> well he's just he's just incredibly one note but at least i think i think he's a good design and i think he's imposing i oh, know i hate that i hate the design i really and I, and i think the design takes <laughs> away from the performance and it doesn't help this probably like arrived in a stretch of movies because i remember thinking the same thing rexman apocalypse like oh, why did superhero movies keep taking these good actors and then burying them under blue makeup so so deep that you can't see a performance at least this film has fewer blue characters than Dark Phoenix. <laughs> but it's, so the it's it's so he's blue, and then the the black stuff on his face. I, I just I, I don't think you you get the chance to see much performance through it. So I don't know whether Lee Pace is doing something good or bad. I just feel like and and like and under the hood as well, and the the way the voice is modulated, I just find it all so uninteresting. And in a movie where I would say character design is one of its strong points. Like all of the guardians look great, the costumes look great. Um the Nova Corps like I think look incredible. The design of the ships and all that stuff and then like but just everything about Ronan, I don't know like is it com- is it pretty comics accurate is that Yeah, I would say it's one of the most comic accurate designs they've done in in the movies. 
And that's probably why I quite like the design. <laughs> like for me, the problem is all in the character, like in how he's written. Like there's no, I don't feel like Ronan really has a story in this movie. Like there are things that he does and we get told sort of in a very sketched out way, like, oh yeah, he's working for Thanos and now he's turned on Thanos. I don't feel it. And that, and all of that stuff's weird. So that was the other, that was the other thing that a lot of people didn't like. Like, and I'll be honest, I was one of these people who was super worried about Thanos because the only time he'd actually spoken was when he was floating on this weird space throne. Um, (laughs) They cast Brolin for this, didn't they? Like that was when we found out it was Brolin, Mm -hmm. but they, they still hadn't figured out the character design uh, obviously, like I don't think the the level of effort went into you know the the performance capture that does in Infinity War and Endgame, and uh, the the relationship mm. between them is 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 unclear. So, but it, like we know that Thanos has been teed up as like a a huge villain in the MCU, but the MCU hasn't shown us anything that he's done yet or how powerful he is. So when like Ronan turns up and like his show of power is snapping. Alexis Denisov's neck like that's just another Chitauri like and that's the Chitauri who like got to say words <laughs> it's the one it's who not... spoke who spoke about Loki in <laughs> Avengers yeah and then he rebels against Thanos and Thanos kind of goes like oh okay <laughs> it also it doesn't really <laughs> chime with what we've seen before because it's like if Thanos is really that hot on the Infinity Stones why did he give one away and then send someone else to get the other? Like, what's he doing? Well, I mean, that was a, a, a lot of people said this, didn't they? When we were when we were gearing up towards Infinity War, like, does it really make sense any of the stuff that Thanos did with the Infinity <laughs> Stones in the, mm. you know, in in like the first ten movies in this franchise? Yeah, and you can forgive it because you know they just hadn't got scripts or whatever, so they didn't know what they were going to do. They just sort of had loose ideas, but yeah. you know. If you want to present him as this big cosmic threat, I don't think they they hadn't even decided that uh, Loki's scepter was going to be an Infinity Stone at that point. So they thought they were just probably giving him a scepter. And yeah, then they exactly. Went, oh no, it's, well because of Vision, it makes sense that it's Infinity. And then so Thanos has given one away to get another one that he didn't get, and here he sends someone else to get one that it doesn't make its way back to him. <laughs> Silly. <laughs> but yeah, I just think the whole I think the whole Ronan dynamic doesn't really work. I mean, also and- the fact that. Like Gamora is also one of his like lieutenants, and like he, she's also rebelled against him. It just it makes him look like a fucking joke. Like he's trying to, he's he's supposed to be the big bad, but he can't keep his own people in check. Like yeah. it just it sort of it has this effect of undermining him, and we're all going, wait, Thanos is supposed to be this serious contender, but he's an idiot. I think the thing is, it's sort of by the time of. Infinity War and Endgame, you can sort of you can play more with Thanos being like undone by his own arrogance and that kind of thing because because he's a character, you know, you're you're getting into yeah. him in more in more detail in in those. But yeah, I think at this early, so that's why I think retrospectively you can justify those things as Thanos was too arrogant. But actually, at this point, yeah, he needs to be more competent because he needs to be being set up as the terrifying bad who is going to defeat them all. The only, the only time that I think he's kind of terrifyingly competent in that way is the opening scene of Infinity War when he's taking down the Asgardians. Movie, isn't in it. I think it just complicates things. I was going to say, like, he... Apparently, mm. if you believe James Gunn, and we've got no reason not to, um, it was, like, one of the few things they mandated for Guardians was, like, oh, you have to have Thanos in it at some point. 
And, you mm. know, you can say maybe he could have executed it better, but I think the constraint of having to do that doesn't help this film, not least because it takes the attention off Ronan as the person you want to defeat. Especially, like, Drax's whole story is, oh, yeah, I, I want to get back at Ronan. And then at the end, he goes, actually, Thanos is the guy I really care about. Mm. Yeah, that, that I, I get the joke, but it doesn't work. For yeah. Me, that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I, I think that I think it's just every time the movie cuts back to Ronan, you're going from all of this fun, quippy stuff to a guy going, "I'm going to do this now because I am bad," and and it's it feels like you lose all of the fun and the energy that like his locations aren't as like visually dynamic. Like it's it's normally just him in a dark room with like Thanos's projected face, or it's just ne- it's never as fun. It's it's. It's a shame they decided to obviously make his stuff so serious that they can't put some humour in his stuff. Because I think, you know, and, you know, I think, as I mentioned before, you know, the scene where he works best is where he is suddenly confronted (laughs) with the silliness of the main characters and plot. Well, yeah, because he's in a different movie to them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's a shame you don't get that earlier because him reacting or having to react stoically to or be the straight man to humorous people around mm-hmm. him might have worked a bit better yeah. whether that's you know you somehow link him a bit more to um the yondu side of things you know like sort of um i can imagine ronan and yondu sharing scenes together and that and being that's, quite and funny that's how that's how gamora um, kind of works for a lot of this movie that she is she's come from that side of things she is more at face value more of a badass than than the rest of the characters or, or at least like is is not goofy because she's not a big tree. She's not a raccoon. She's not. She's not an idiot like Peter. Um, and what you see is like you, you get the humor of her being the straight guy, but you also get the fun of like her being kind of like seduced by the rest of these guys, <laughs> like and having like having her sharp edges filed away. And I, I don't mean seduced in a romantic way. I mean <laughs> Although that does of, happen. Yes, all that that does. But I like I like how she is kind of you know like she kind of sees like, oh, this is what a family could be. It doesn't have to be Thanos and Nebula and and Ronan and all this fucked up stuff that I've got going on over there. Like, I could care for people. Um and, and, and I could have a bit of fun as well. And I and I you know, and I think you see that arc throughout the movie. So that yeah, and and it just makes it makes Ronan feel completely I don't know, I I guess you need a villain ostensibly but yeah mm. <laughs> uh, i kind of forgive it because the rest of the movie is so fun and like you say they do at least make him work in that final showdown scene that one look that like what what are you doing yeah yeah lee pace <laughs> lee pace really sells that yeah. scene but it's probably the first time he's been out in daylight for the entire movie so you actually, <laughs> yeah. you actually get to see his expressions which are nice as well i mean there's that really weird introduction isn't there where he's like sleeping in uh, like a tube of water like just what's yeah. going on gets drained off and then people throw the the like the the gold paint at him and do his do his face makeup it's nice yeah. that he gets his face paint done so yeah anyway let's go back to the guardians and the fun stuff so they all meet each other for the first time on xandar uh xandar which is gloriously london south bank but with like <laughs> with with an alien makeover like you can see the gherkin in the background and you know that bridge is like is <laughs> the millennium, is millennium bridge. bridge 
Apparently, it was actually supposed to be the gardens by the bay in Singapore, but uh, yeah, <laughs> to London yeah. eyes, it's definitely yeah. It, yeah. Um, it, it it's it's very entertaining, and it's it's really it's a really important thing to get that right again because you know coming back to that point about what this film manages to do so well is is throw so much that is new and unusual and and vastly open up the expanse of the setting of these films and and what they do and also it's you know it's creating settings that are going to be used in future films whenever we go into the cosmic stuff so it's really really important to set that up in such a way as to not alienate and to not just feel bizarre or or you know kind of feel a barrier to the audience because it's just oh it's it's annoying sci-fi stuff that's you know over the top and and I think it really gets the right tone of feeling like a kind of a recognizable society that just happens to be you know a little bit bigger and a little bit brighter and more technological and people with differently colored skin because it's you know people are still going round being people and doing peoplely things and Stanley's being a, ladies, a, man. you know <laughs> philandering yeah um and you know the the way that it uses and also as well because you know this is the scene that's introducing Rocket and Groot and introducing Rocket and Groot in such a way that from a character point of view they are just such this immediately recognisable yeah. duo that you have seen in a million films and TV shows before. It's just that in this one, they are a tree and a raccoon. But other than, <laughs> other that, than that, they are just the little talkative wise guy and the muscle. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, it really, it's so important to nail that scene. And that scene, I think, is the scene that just pulls you into the world of this film and and lets you buy it from there on. I I also I I mean I think the 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 character design of both of those is fantastic. But you I I don't think you mm. can be complimentary enough about the voice performances. Uh, Vin Diesel for for the fact that he's saying three words you will never see a voice actor <laughs> who is more engaged like the fact that he, the fact that he was so excited that he get, he got to voice this character in every different language because it was just <laughs> you could just go out there and do the three words and like and carry on but Bradley Cooper mm. I remember when they announced Bradley Cooper we talked about you know the voice of Rocket being a thing that that we spoke about in the other podcast yeah um you know, it felt like it felt like from what I'd heard about that character, it like, uh, and all I knew was like, here is a raccoon who carries around Uzis or or wh- whatever it was supposed to be, and you thought like you yeah. kind of need a Jason Statham or someone like that, and instead you get Bradley Cooper, and you're like, oh, I'm not sure how that, and and Bradley Cooper, who remark, you know, you don't think about Bradley Cooper in relation to the MCU, you know, no, he he doesn't. He barely does any press. I don't think he really turns up to the premieres or anything like that. He could, I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't even sound like Bradley Cooper. No, but in the, the performance. That, so. But the commitment no. to the voice performance and the way that the voice performance marries up with the character design. I can't believe you get that amount of emotion. And I mean, said this is the character that you you've connected with from this franchise. Yes. Like, but. <laughs> I'm stunned every time I come back to these movies that you're you're able to elicit that amount of feeling from a talking raccoon, mm. and I think Bradley Cooper's just the the voice performance is is sublime. Yeah, and for you know for a character that is not there 
on set, you know, other than the fact that it's you've got Sean Gunn kind of doubling for him, or you've got a puppet that they're using from time to time, for him to be such an integral and tangible part of of what's going on. Uh, and yeah, I you know, <laughs> we've made no secret in the past that like you know Rocket is is my favourite character in this series of films and one of my favourite characters in all of these films. Full stop. Um, and I just think I think he is kind of the the heart that ties it together, which is you know part of what why that's so good is that you know he's the one that at the outset is the the cynical and and possibly heartless character, and actually. You know, um, he's the one who they just they just really make you care so much. It's brilliant, and you know the the way that he kind of has all of those interactions with the different characters as well. I mean, you know, to differing extents. I mean, you know, you you wouldn't really say that there's a, a Rocket and Gamora dynamic, but um, you know, it it really works to kind of give him the links with them. <laughs> Don't they? Do they make a joke out of that in Endgame? Oh no, it's Mantis, isn't it? Sorry. Yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you talked about you've seen that relationship before. It is Han and Chewie, but it it's it's such a good and easy shorthand that you show this kind of like, this this guy who is, who's a badass but ostensibly doesn't really like care about anyone and kind of presents himself as out for himself. But then here is this big mute friend that he has. Or, or basically mute mm. um who they clearly have like quite a sweet relationship and rocket is immediately quite protective of and like when groot's drinking from the fountain mm. and it is almost like groot's his pet but you know but in a more but in a yeah. in a a closer connection than that and it straight away tells you something about rocket in the same way that han's relationship with chewie does in star wars mm. I mean, it's it's one of the best things that the the film does, and I'm because I, I'm, I'm not super familiar with the the Guardians comics that preceded the film. I have read some of them since, um, so I don't know how much of this does come from the comics or if it made its way into the comics afterwards. But making Groot so sweet and so just good natured, and it's obviously you know it's kind of it's it's childlike naivety to an extent, but. Part of what makes Groot so work so well is that he looks the way he does, and he is, you know, the strongest and and probably most powerful out of all of them. And yet he's just like this lovable, you know. He's just he's just so nice, and you know, goes all the way to that bit towards the end of the film where he's slamming them against, <laughs> slamming the henchmen against the walls, and then turns around with a big grin on his face. Mm. It's just, yeah. <laughs> Um, let's talk about Peter, uh, because I mean, we, we, we talked briefly about him at the start, but again, like walking out of this movie, like suddenly everyone clocks that hang on is Chris Pratt overnight, the biggest star on the planet. (laughs) Like he's just suddenly, yeah, I I mean, like Jurassic World off the the back of this Jurassic World becomes the highest grossing movie of all time, uh, in the U S, uh, not there anymore, obviously, but um, but you know, was for a hot second, and I, I think he was in the Lego Movie around a similar time, which was you know like fantastic, and you could you know Chris Pratt em- Emmett feels like a mm. Chris Pratt stand-in, um, yeah, and and I think some of the charm in the character is that yeah, as we said, he's a dick at the start of this movie, he's out for himself. But you see a bit of that childlike vulnerability in him, and I think for people like um, I, I definitely speaking for you, for me and you here, Seb, and I'm not sure about James, but as 
Parks and Recreation fans, you see the fat guy in him. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? You do, like mm. he he doesn't <laughs> feel like this unattainable superhero god. You kind of you see you see Chubby Chris Pratt in this performance. He still has a bit of that, and I'm not sure I've seen that more recently. Like I feel like now there is a remove from Chris Pratt when I see him on the screen. That like <laughs> now you see the Schwarzenegger yeah. guy. Well, here's an, here's another Hollywood asshole, right? <laughs> But in mm. in this movie, I kind of feel like I see the fat guy in his performance. I see the guy that has worked so hard to get to get this role, and who, who like like it feels like the role is the perfect role for this guy at this point in his career, who's transformed himself to get there. And that sequence in the in the prison where he takes his shirt off for the first time, and you go, "Fucking hell." <laughs> <laughs> Andy had boobs when I saw him on Parts of Recreation. <laughs> and and here he is. And he's just such an easy character to like. And considering, as we've talked about, he's a dick, that's that's so crucial. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so crucial. Mm. And so you put you're throwing these these characters together who that like they have that fight, right, on Xandar, yeah? Which is like, it's almost screwball. It's like, one character takes another character out, and then this character takes that character out, and it ends with them all being arrested and, and being taken up to the prison. And then, you, so you get the, the trailer sequence. I think it, I think it's amazing in the trailer. I think it kind of plays fine in the movie, but you don't need it. The stuff that comes after it, though, I think this is, this is again, when the movie's visual palette starts to like pop so much Chris Pratt takes his shirt off and gets showered in that orange gunk and they put on the yellow jumpsuits and you see rockets kind of weird the the like the scars from the genetic experiments on his back and it's little stuff in the performances all of his implants and stuff yeah yeah and you and you see kind of you see mm. you see Star Lord clock them and go and uh, you know you, you can tell that there's empathy in all of these characters. I think that's that's the crucial thing. That even though they're all presenting as dicks, you can see that they've all got this this empathy within them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know you get that hint of vulnerability from Gamora as soon as she goes into the prison as well. And here is still a group of people that are completely out for themselves, but you you like them all implicitly from the moment they come on screen. And I think that's so important. Mm-hmm. And and then yeah, the prison. I mean the prison stuff. The yellow jumpsuits, the the visuals of all of that, of all of that, it is. I think that's the, this is the moment. If the if the title sequence doesn't have you hooked, the prison stuff is it's a joy. Well, what I what I love about the the prison stuff uh, in terms of the the look and the production design is um, that's where the film starts to get its it's it really brings out its red dwarf aesthetic um, <laughs> yes. because it's that you know I as far as like sci fi aesthetics go uh, I love anything that's got that kind of everything's based around metal grating yes. like and yeah. and rusty red look and as i say I, I i i actually think i don't think red dwarf gets enough credit for actually being quite influential in that area because red dwarf looks the way it does a lot of the time because they were filming on like gantries and stuff around the <laughs> yeah, studios so that's why everything's gratings and you know kind of crates on the ceiling to look like metal grating and stuff like that and yeah this this film just 
so and obviously it, it comes from a lot of other places as well and a lot of other things have done it but this film leans into that aesthetic so much um, I, I think alien and blade runner are the two that yeah. it, it <laughs> mostly comes yeah. from but and, and star wars and star wars you know but uh, yeah it, it, but, I, but i think it, of star wars as as a fair bit cleaner i think it is um, it doesn't it is, have that but... that grunge i think that that grunginess does kind of come from late 80s early 90s sci-fi yeah, but mm, no, I, I think I, it's fairly seventies. I, I would say because Star Wars and Alien are both are both. I think supposed Star to be Wars. Star Wars kicks it off in the in it's more that you know you, it's your flip to your clean two thousand and one esque spaceships that Star Wars feels like the 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 spaceships in Star Wars feel at least lived in and especially the Millennium Falcon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and I you know I, we've spoken about this on the podcast before. I'm no Star Wars fan, but I, <laughs> I mean none like, of us I, are, right? <laughs> I understand the, the the influence that it's had, and then Alien, particularly, which is what two years later mm-hmm. is seventy nine. Yeah, working class mining ship with like you know you know even within the ship you've got your like two tiers of your your like your maintenance guys and your uh, uh, and you, you you've got your class dynamics going on within the ship and the ship does feel very lived in very industrial it does a lot i still think i i think i think alien is still quite a bit cleaner and white i think it's aliens mm. which again you know late 80s rather than 70s i think it's aliens that brings in the clanking corridors and you know, dirtiness more. I but. you know, I would, I would very much disagree, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's. A I don't know. I, th- I think of Alien. I, th- I think of the Nostromo. I think of gleaming white corridors. <laughs> really? Oh, you need to rewatch Alien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. Like, you think of the mess hall more than anything. Mm. Anyway, the prison looks good, and you're right, Seb. <laughs> it does look very red dwarfy. The metal grating on the floors, all, all that kind of stuff. The rusty red. It it feels very red dwarf, which I I, I doubt James Gunn would have been directly uh, cribbing <laughs> yeah. from. I mean, if but... anyone was though, if anyone from the MCU is going to be cribbing from red dwarf, I it feel like it would be, be James yes, it Gunn. Yeah. Would be. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I, and again, like, so I love like the you know the alien who puts on Peter's headphones. Yeah. So again, Peter's headphones have those orange muffs, and they've just been sprayed in orange, and the the alien is wearing like a kind of with his blue skin he's got like a little the insignia on the on the prison guards costume has a little bit of that orange in it and just the colors the colors work together and i know a lot of a lot of people feel frustrated by superhero movies and i think this was probably around the time that a lot of people were saying all mcu movies look the same as well mm. i mean i i just if i would ever just have to look at stills from a movie I'd much rather look at a Guardians movie than a Russo's, you know, movie. <laughs> this like, don't like car parks, Joe. Yeah, give me, give me my blues and oranges over concrete. <laughs> like, I, yeah, yeah. And and speaking of blues and oranges, the prison is where we meet Drax for the first time. So again, this is like what probably like twenty minutes, half an hour in, and the team are, are only, slowly like, assembling. Really, yeah, slowly assembling in in a in a in what feels like a an organic way right mm. and and even though that when they're all getting together none of them really like each other i think by the time that by the time the team are stood together and you get that great hero shot at the top of the um it's at the top of the you know when they've when they've got the made their way into the like the prison guards office 
and you know it's guns over the shoulders and they're like it's like all right yeah here are the guardians of the galaxy (laughs) what are your thoughts on drax james you as you were saying you interviewed batista yeah um so it's interesting because Drax in the comics has had like a couple of different versions. Um, the version of Drax I was most familiar with was one who had like suffered brain damage and had sort of extremely low functioning uh, intelligence levels. Like he was basically the Hulk, but in space. Like he used to go around with Moon Dragon, who was his daughter, and she had sort of telling him what to do and stop him from, you know, smashing things that he was angry with. Mm. So this version of the character, like, I know they revised him, Abnett and Lanning in Guardians sort of revised him to to be a bit smarter and a bit less bulky and, you know, gave him the tattoos and stuff to try and try and snap him into focus as his own character. And I think the movie does that extremely, like, it, it takes everything that the comics version was trying to do and just goes like bang here he is what if we showed you this like incredibly intimidating physical specimen to the point that we will you know we're going to cast an uh, a wwe wrestler <laughs> who is going to be shirtless the entire time and fair play to dave bautista at his age for continuing to keep that fizzy <laughs> um but so here is this hulking you know terrifying potentially you know like his capacity for violence is enormous and we're going to marry that with well he's kind of an idiot <laughs> i mean for me actually and, and and the bit is that everything is literal the, like the literal thing i think is a funny joke and that you know they completely discard it for guardians 2 like it, Do they? they they don't execute it very well in guardians 2 it's not like I, I think they just place less emphasis on it i think it's still there I think it's just more that I I think they realise that that joke on its own isn't enough to continue <laughs> to sustain the character. Yeah, where the character's got to turn up five or six times. So it's it's not just that he's literal. It's that and Dave Bautista's talked about this about like the character being um have it's it's connected with audiences um with like autistic viewers in the audience because that's how Bautista tried to play it. So like he is a character who feels very deeply but isn't but is not very socially adept and kind of just just says what's on his yeah, mind. This is the point I was gonna make because when I think of Drax, what actually comes to me first is sort of the the almost tenderness that he has towards like his friends and his daughter yeah like married with his inability to express that in any way (laughs) and 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 i think that comes across in the second one with the mantis stuff yeah definitely he is he's like in every interaction with mantis he's making her feel terrible but you can tell that like he's he's doing it all because he's really fond of her Mm -hmm. um and you know for a character who feels very deeply but is incredible, you know, it is still intimidating. Dave Bautista's perfect. Mm-hmm. I think I talked about this, that back in my, like, film blogging days, I got an email saying, we we uh, review this direct-to-DVD movie. And I'm not sure why I said yes to this one. I was just like, yeah, sure, send me it. I'll, yeah, I'll blog about it. Uh, watched it, and it was kind of, it was crap, but Dave Bautista was in it, and I was like, oh, I, like that was better than what I was expecting from a, from a, you know, wrestler that I'd never heard of. 
and he's spoken about that movie and and talks about like that performance and that movie getting kind of savage and getting told that he was a bit shit like being a, an incredible motivation to him and he was like i don't want to you know i, I want to be great i want to be a really good actor and i'm going to i'm going to fight to try and get there and i, and I you know I, I i thought you could see something in him in that performance but what the point that he managed to get to in this and and that empathy really does that that you know here is a guy that clearly wears his emotions on his chest and the facts you know in real life the way that he stood up for James Gunn or stood by his principles with James Gunn <laughs> saying you know if you're done with James Gunn I'm done with you I you know I want to stand with that guy yep <laughs> you, you kind of got the rest of the cast kind of signed that letter but there was never no no one really stood up in the same way that Batista did did they yeah well you sort of get the sense that Batista sort of knew how much he owed to James Gunn in terms of his career, whereas the others were a bit mm. like, well, we were already movie stars. Mm. I think he just, I, but I, do you know what? I just think that here is a guy that is is clearly passionate and feels deeply about things. And that, mm-hmm. again, that comes across in this character. And I just think it's, it's just, it's so well cast across the board that you kind of like, their real life personas seem to almost bleed into the characters. And, and, and the characters become more rewarding for that. In the same way that I spoke about with Pratt, but you know when 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 Drax is introduced in the prison, he's there to kill Gamora. So again, here is again like we've we've warmed to Gamora a bit already. We definitely don't want her to die. Um, and here is Drax pinning her up by her neck against a wall, like kidnapping her in the middle of the night to murder her in prison. We shouldn't like that guy, but we <laughs> but again, so quickly we do because they because. Gunn gives him that bit to play with. Batista's incredibly engaging. And it also gives you like this moment to see to see the growth in Star-Lord. Because I think that's the first moment you see him in like protector mode again in the movie. Because mm-hmm. he's he's there. Like, yeah, he wants to bang Gamora. That's part of it. But so he's standing up for someone but else. Also, yeah, at that point, he's not really got any reason to rush forward in a prison fight where he could potentially be done yeah. extreme damage. <laughs> yeah. um, I think the other thing, just in terms of softening up, um, uh, you know, kind of making that scene softer and, and softening your, your feelings towards Drax is that there are the jokes in that scene because that's obviously where, it's where you first get the literalism with the finger across the throat thing. And the knife line gets me every time as well because that's one of those... Uh, that's one of those this film kind of does a certain type of gag from time to time which is to um it is quite a, it's quite a it's a sitcommy way of sort of um and a, and a sort of kind of you get it in kind of good sci-fi comedy things of you know taking a sort of a serious line or a serious situation and putting a very human and very sitcommy joke underneath it so the you know um that's my favorite knife line <laughs> Um, you know like that shouldn't be there but um, you know it really just sort of um, it says a lot about where this film is sitting yeah and you and you get you get a bunch of that stuff in the prison so you get the 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 throat slitting gesture which is actually what I thought you were talking about to begin with there I did Um, I did and then I moved on to the knife but yeah (laughs) you you also get the um, the stuff with the leg yeah, I, the, the, the group group just going for the battery and yeah. kicking and kicking all of this into motion straight. Away. <laughs> that that sequence with Groot is probably one of my favorite MCU sequences of like out of any movie. 
just just him walking into the background just the sort of physical comedy and like of them the sort of weedon-esque undercutting of this big sort of okay we're gonna Mm. do a heist plan like here's how it's gonna work here's what's gonna happen and like while they're doing that group just sort of wanders off in the background like does this really simple thing of just like growing up stretching yanking out and the way when he pulls off the cover it like flies off and hits the other guy in the head (laughs) yeah it's like this chaplin-esque moment of comedy i mean i'm you know sorry to i'm not sorry to make another red dwarf comparison because you know sci-fi comedy uh but it's the it's the or we could use the teleporter (laughs) <laughs> which is one of my favourite jokes in Dwarf, and it's a similar sort of yeah, you know, in a, in a normal sci-fi thing, here's this long and convoluted plan, uh, but in this, the thing I like there is that then they're just like, or oh, we could improvise, and like off they go into another completely different action sequence, like yeah, where you see them all flying by the seat of their pants, and like okay, let's just wing it and see how it goes, and like it's it's good in a character way because it shows you like these people are actually really good at what they do it's just that like they're screwed up on a personal level yeah yeah um i really like that um so they 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 then escape the prison right once they do the once they do the uh what is it's anti-gravity isn't it and then like they Mm -hmm. turn the prison guard into like a spaceship um, I think what I think one of the things that I like most, and this this applies to the actiony bits, but also stuff like we were just talking about in the prison, was for all of the for all of this being a big budget sci fi movie set in space with a giant tree and a raccoon. So much of it feels really tangible, and I you know I I don't know how much of it is from the production, but you know like the sets feel real and like when when Groot's doing that stuff in the background I don't know it doesn't it doesn't feel like a CG creation to me mm-hmm. and so that's either really good that's either really good effects work or you know a, a good mix of it with the sets but you know I mean like I think it's stuff like you know that that is the makeup that De Batista's wearing that is the makeup that Zoe Saldana is wearing and Karen Gillan like it's all that like They've not decided to do it through performance catcher, mm-hmm. and I, and I, and I think it helps in this movie that yeah, again, it does it does need to feel like this almost kind of like more industrial type of sci-fi than than clean and polished, and it and it and it does yeah, it works it works aesthetic wise for me. Um, one thing that I'm not as keen on, I'll see see where you guys stand on it with this is Tyler Bates's score. I. <laughs> It it always strikes me as a little bit sub Avengers. I love the I love the music cues in this movie. I love what I love what um, James Gunn does with his awesome mix. But that like yeah, the Guardians music has always felt like yeah, kind of like a a riff on other MCU stuff rather than its own thing. I know what you mean. I I, I think. I think it's a set, it's a score that's maybe aware that it doesn't matter because the score is not the draw of the soundtrack. <laughs> it's a no draw score. <laughs> I, I hope that's not the way that Tyler Bates approached it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean no, but I just I'm, think I think yeah, it's. I feel like I'm ill ill positioned to comment on the score because like my default position is not noticing a score. <laughs> Yeah. In most movies, so I think this I think this follows like shortly enough on the back of the Avengers, which was I, I think is still my favourite MCU score. Um certainly it's the um, best theme. Uh, yeah, and but that's and I, I think that Tyler Bates's main theme in this sounds a bit crib from Sylvester. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah. fair, because yeah, if you think of what the sort of 
the main Guardians theme is. It's it's and actually, if I think of it, I think of it more in the second film, the way it's used in the um, you know, the Guardians Inferno track and stuff that they did. But it's it's very Avengersy. It's not a dissimilar melody to Avengers. I couldn't pick it out of a lineup. I've got to be honest. <laughs> So the Avengers head from the prison to the Avengers. nowhere. The Avengers. The Avengers. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> because uh, because the Space Tyler Avengers has just, has just made me think that the Space <laughs> Avengers head to nowhere. Um, and so we we get a bit of we get a bit of time to spend with them in the ship, and it is you know it, it's that it's that mix of in an Avengersy way, like we're going to have these guys snipe at each other until they need to come together. But this is, this is an aspect where I don't feel like it does feel like it's riffing on the Avengers or like it's just doing a different, you know, like a subpar version of what the Avengers did. Cause the Avengers was this bunch of heroes that had been thrown together and kind of needed to learn how to work with each other. And I think, I feel like it's almost the cat. These, these guys don't need to learn how to work with each other. They need to learn to kind of like to rely on each other and to kind of like they need to form the bonds, right? So while they're sniping, they're not sniping in a Tony Stark like uh, Steve Rogers way in the first Avengers movie where they're both kind of like flexing their egos and going, "I'm I'm what a hero should be. You are a poor imitation of that." These guys are all going like, "I've got a thing to do. Will you get out of my way?" <laughs> But kind of, we've all got the same thing to do, which is it's this we it's this MacGuffin in the middle of the movie, which is the Infinity Stone, mm-hmm. and it's just and it, and it lets you do nice character stuff. <laughs> it's quite a lot of character stuff in the film that kind of doesn't have to be there, but it really helps that it is. <laughs> well, the the plot itself is not that convoluted, right? Mm-hmm. They've they've got this thing. Ronan wants the thing. I guess Yondu wants the thing. Someone we've not talked about that much yet, uh, if at all. Um, and they they kind of like, they just, they're going to sell it. And then because they can't sell it, they're going to protect it. Or, or or do they, no, Ronan gets it, doesn't he? So they try and get it back. It's just yeah. basically, it's, it's basically a Chase the MacGuffin movie. Mm. And when your plot's as basic as that, you can just have fun with the characters in the scenes. Yeah, it is the it is the benefit of having having that to rely on, and it's you know the plot is simplistic can be a criticism, and I think you know a plot can be simple but still fall down. I think this, other than the fact that yeah, okay, the the Thanos stuff doesn't really work. I think there's so much going on, as you say, kind of with this film that that. Yeah, it, the plot does almost need to just kind of sit back a bit. The plot just needs to be an excuse to hang all the locations and set pieces and character stuff onto, um, which it does. You know, and it you know it gives you it gives you the reason to go back to Xandar, which you know when you leave Xandar in the first place, you're kind of like, oh, it'd be nice to go back there and see that again, kind of thing. Uh, it's the reason to go to nowhere and to see that and and get that kind of almost the complete opposite of Xandar in terms of the, you know, kind of showing these societies in, in an alien setting. Uh, it's the reason to bring Yondu into it, which, yeah, we haven't really talked... I've realised, actually, with Yondu, and indeed with the guy who takes um, Quills Walkman, this film does have more blue skin characters than Dark Phoenix does. <laughs> I think that's an important <laughs> clarification to make. Um, At least it makes sense, yeah, though, because, like, Crees are supposed <laughs> to have blue skin as a species. Well, yeah, exactly. It's full, it's, it's full of Crees, so, yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about one of them, Seb. Let's talk about Yondu, who again I think is a character that you have a lot of affection for. 
Yeah, and this I mean, is this is James Gunn bringing Michael Rucker in, who you know it's not is it's like been a solid character actor over the years. Mister Svenning on... from Morris. It's Mister Svenning. It's just I I can't see you know Michael Rucker is Mister Svenning as far as I'm concerned. Like, <laughs> that's why I will always like him. <laughs> I think JFK was my first exposure, but I mean Hen- Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, right? Is the is was yeah his that was his role. yeah breakout, wasn't it? But I think he'd found he'd found his way onto like the the kind of like the B movie radar and um and, and James Gunn's world, but then probably for audiences coming into this movie, I think this was just off the back of him having a role in the first few seasons of The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was kind of a supporting role and he kept popping mm. up uh, rather than being featured, but like he was like this kind of kind of very charismatic, but scumbag antagonist right <laughs> but again with this like you know i think again that the walking dead recognized that y- you could do whilst he was like this white trash racist jerk there's something about rucker that you've got this a- again this inherent empathy there that you can do some he's not just purely a jerk mm. and it's and yeah, i mean it's now you look at yon doing this film and you i think it's hard to see um, everything that's done with Yondu in this film was anything other than setting up for what they then do with him in Volume Two. And I think you know you you look at the two of them as one whole, and this is just a part of it. But I do like again it kind of their ways of giving him that softening, um, and it's things like you know when when he's so kind of confrontational with Peter about the whole oh I was going to let them eat you, and then Peter being like, will you stop saying that you were going to let me? Eat you? <laughs> and the the whole thing with his his liking have to have little figures on his dashboard and the way that pays off with the troll thing at the end yeah. uh, is just great. You know, I, I love the fact that at one point in the film, a little while after you've had the whole thing of him getting the, the little figurine, it shows it on his console later on in the film. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really nice touch. I think um, that, that smile from him when, yes. he, when he sees the troll at the end of the movie yeah. is, is, Perfect, because we, you know, we've seen the stuff with the arrow. We know how, again, how intimidating he is, and how potentially yeah. powerful he is. But I mean, you're right. That like, it's so difficult to watch this movie and not just project forward to what you're going to see from the character. Mm. But I think, I think James Gunn across the two movies gets Yondu kind of really right. Yeah. Um, and and Rucker again is another member of this cast that's great. Um. So the Guardians go to nowhere. I don't, this is kind of your pause and explain the Infinity War, uh, the Infinity Stones scene. Mm. <laughs> Quite literally. Yeah. Because they all stand in a room while someone explains the Infinity Stones to them. And let's be fair, to the audience for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I had thought Dark World not done it a bit. A bit. I think I don't think it had ever pointed out like there are six of them. Here's what they yeah. represent or whatever. It feels like a it feels like a like a special feature on a DVD though, doesn't it? Rather than again, it feels like probably James Gunn was told you have to do this thing. Yeah, um, but then also, this is one of those sequences that, as a Marvel nerd, you know, I ate this up. Like if I could have rewatched <laughs> any sequence, it would have been that one. Like I was scouring this for references to try and figure out what they were doing and you know how they were going to introduce the Infinity Stones. You know, I can't I can't pretend as clunky as it was. I can't pretend I didn't love it. <laughs> Because I, what I was about to say was, on nowhere. Whilst that might be, you know, like the, the that's that's the purpose of them being there. 
everything else on that planet is more interesting. So I, I love the, <laughs> the sequence. Well, I, no, I love the sequence with Peter and um, Gamora looking out at the, you know, the cosmos. And it's these, this gorgeous, almost like cloud-like multicolored nebula in the background. And he puts the headphones on her and they almost have the kiss. And then she, and you know, and, pelvic again, sorcery, just pelvic sorcery, some really nice dialogue <laughs> in there. And then in the background that gets interrupted because rocket and Groot start fighting with Drax because Drax insulted rocket. And you see like the real, like visceral, like it damage that rocket has, you know, here is this character who is so, so hurt. Um, and, and, and I think that's the sequence where later in the film, Peter says, doesn't he? He says, we're all losers, and I don't mean that. I, I I don't mean that how you think. I mean, I mean we've all lost something, and that's again. I think that's so crucial to this team that these are these are people who are all damaged by their past, and they've got they all got like an emotional hole that needs filling. And this movie is about them realizing that this group of people who shouldn't really, on the face, be capable of filling that hole together really are. Yep. And all that's missing is Mantis to put it all together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> James, you wanted to you wanted to criticize the collector. Yeah, I like the performance is so over the top. Like I'm not overly familiar with Benicio del Toro as an actor, because um, you know my position on the podcast is to be the guy who doesn't have a clue about any movies that aren't directly related to comics. <laughs> um. I I th- feel like the reason people really criticised that post credit sequence because uh, uh, that was on Thor The Dark World was more to do with Benicio Del Toro's performance than anything. Because mm. everyone was like going, oh, it's, it's so cheap and strange. And it's like, yeah, because Benicio Del Toro was dialed up to like 15. <laughs> That's fair. I kind of like it though. I like, I, I really, I like Ophelia Lovibond as the weird like, purple alien Karina. i still don't think it makes i don't think it makes much sense that she grabs the infinity stone um but i kind of i kind of like the whole weird loopy vibe in the collector's vault i like that there is cosmo the dog there and i like that there's a chitari and it, it it's it's all slightly sinister and again i think this speaks to the characters at this point of the film that they would be willing to sell the stone to this guy so it's it's not about it's it's still at this point not about saving people, is it? It's just about them making the money mm-hmm. and not like so. Gamora's gone, maybe. Uh, maybe this makes more sense than Ronan, but the rest of them are just like, yeah, let's let's sell this thing to this <laughs> cre- creepy dude who has people locked up in vaults all around him and is out loud saying that he would like to lock up Groot as well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I do sort of feel like the collector's story gets a bit sidelined in the movies because, like, they set him up in this film almost as Mm. someone who is someone else who is after the Infinity Stones. But it seems like he's never really got the clout necessary to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, uh, well, and also just whether the, you know, Marvel reassess certain priorities and he wasn't one of them <laughs> yeah i mean he like this character doesn't actually appear again like what we get is an illusion of him in infinity war yeah i guess after it, it I, I i'm gonna assume he's not dead because i think marvel would be crazy 
not to put that character on the screen with Jeff Goldblum at some point. No, quite. Mm. I was going to say, I mean, is, it, it, is he directly connected to the Grandmaster? In not, in the comics, not, yeah. In the comics, they're both elders. They're elders not of the universe. Explicitly in the movies, but Jeff Goldblum talks about it on the Thor Ragnarok promotional trail, going, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, I read that I'm the brother of Benicio del Toro," and because <laughs> I, need I to just get on screen together, right? Well, like I just the wonder if that's designs, part of the issue with sorry, go on. the character designs are similar enough that you can see that. They went, okay, well, these guys are clearly connected in some way. Mm. I just think you, now you've had Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster and and doing, you know, if, if they are kind of linked in that way and or they're kind of, you know, two versions of a similar character, Goldblum's is so much more successful in terms of what he gets, what he gets, and then also what he does with it and, and the impact that he has. You know, everyone remembers Jeff Goldblum in Thor Ragnarok in a way that I don't think people do with Benicio Del Toro in this, so... I th- I th- I think does that make the collector feel a bit more of a superfluous character now that we've had the grandmaster? I mean, the collector's one of those characters who his motivations are so sort of nebulous. You can just, if you want a reason to get a bunch of characters or a MacGuffin or whatever in in one place at mm. a specific time, you can just go, oh yeah, the collector's done it because he's collecting. Yeah, if you find a reason to bring back Ronan again, I think you can find a reason to bring that the collector again. <laughs> Um, so Drax kind of betrays them, but through idiocy, um, and invites Ronan <laughs> to the planet that they're on. Um, Spoiling for and a I rumble. Guess, I guess, again, like, uh, as well as, like, explaining the Infinity Stones, this sequence is kind of there to show you what happens when you grab an Infinity Stone, which is that you get torn to pieces, um, as, as happens to the Ophelia Loverborn character. And then similarly, I think, Let's let's properly establish how powerful Ronan is. We've shown how much of a badass Drax is, but he's gonna get annihilated within seconds in front <laughs> of in front of Ronan. So it's I, like I I think again the movie's kind of like it's good at doing its comedy bits around this stuff, but uh, some some of the some of the like pl- the plot mechanics the script needs to to tick this box here so you know this thing later on like. I think the nowhere stuff is where that feels most obvious. Um, but again, I don't know. Like, I, I like the carrots enough. I like the design of nowhere enough. Like, the outside of nowhere feels Blade Runner ish. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, James, it feels a bit Valyrian ish. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is when Nebula turns up again. And I, I, I'd be honest, I think this is sort of the like action sequency bits. In the movie, this is the bit that I'm least engaged with. Drax fighting Ronan, them trying to escape with Nebula, trying to get the stone off of Gamora and those little pod ships. Do you guys agree or does that work any better for you? It certainly feels less essential. Um, Mm. You know, I like the character stuff that happens on Nowhere and I like the location. Yeah. And I (laughs) I like the plot exposition we get. It's just sort of, it does feel a bit like, you know, tick, tick, tick. Now let's do something fun and inventive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this, so so, how do we end this? Ronan gets. Does Ronan end up with the stone? He he ends up with the stone, doesn't he? Because yeah, because this is the point where he goes fuck you, Thanos. Yeah, but but and Nebula, yeah, and Nebula gets the she gets the stone off of Gamora and Peter. Mm-hmm. Peter kind of sacrifices it to save Gamora, and then what? Peter and Gamora end up on Yondu's ship. And the other guys come to save them and almost kill them. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of save them. 
Um, see, I, yeah, I feel like this this whole sequence is a little bit that just becomes a a bit functional for me. It's like, we, how do we set up all of the pieces to the third act? Thanos needs to have the stone. The Guardians need to feel like they've been they've been like knocked down a peg again, and they actually need to decide what they're in this for. But I think once they regroup on Yondu's ship, that that again, that's where the losers line comes. You get you get the whole you know the debating about who's going to come up with the plan and all that stuff. I think as soon as the team all get united again and they they you know we get some more character stuff, that's when Guardians really starts to come together. <laughs> And then they go down. I, I, I think we can pr- pretty much like zoom forward to then the final sequence, right? Or the or, or the going back to Xandar. Yeah. So they've decided that they can't let Ronan have the stone. That they need to. They know he's going to destroy Xandar. They need to protect it. So they reach out to the Nova Corps, and thankfully, because John's and let's talk about the like the casting at the side of this movie. Like you've got Glenn Close, Peter Serafinowicz, and John C. Riley down on Xandar as the Nova Corps representatives. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, they're they're a nice little team with sort of again in in limited screen time. You've got three very distinct types of character. Uh, all all on the same side, which which therefore works quite well. The thing I like um, most about John C. Riley and Peter Serafinovitz is that they, between them, they're like both really hilarious people, but they're playing like, you know, these sort of kind of what we're we looking for, like like authoritarian cops. Mm. And but the way they play it, because they've got these like comedy chops between them, the way they play it as if. You know, they're kind of they undercut themselves, and uh, what am I trying to say? Like, well, I- no, I mean, I, th- I mean, I, I think they get they both get different kinds of humor out of it, and I think I think John C. Riley gets t- sort of it's the moments when he breaks out. Um, so it's things like that bit right at the very end, um, you know, where he's talking about don't commit any more crimes, and he's like, well, and the rockets, uh, Drax, like, well, you know, what if I pull somebody's <laughs> head off? He's like, well, that that would be murder. That would be, and it's like, you know, you can play that scene with that character played by a straight actor, and it would still probably be quite funny. But because you've got those comedy chops of John C. Riley, um, he's he actually is having fun with the line there and making it funnier. I think with Serafinovich, why he's so good is it is Serafinovich fully in playing the character completely straight, but playing it so straight that he comes back through to funny again. Mm-hmm. He's playing up the pomposity of it, right? He, yeah, like he's he he feels like a British sitcom character. Well, that's yeah. They both have this sort of blue collar like you know, small mindedness about them mm. that it it turns the Novacore like in essence, they're saying like, oh, these are the these are the policemen of the galaxy, like they're the big authority, but then you see them and it's like, you know, John C. Riley is just a family guy and, you know, he's not he's not a hero like the Guardians are. Mm. He's just sort of clocking in on his job. It's here are here is this big sci fi movie, but they're all just people. Right? Yeah, they're all yeah. just people who you can like and identify with, and and again, I think that helps this world. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like you are. I don't know, like so, like a movie like John Carter, which I just I've <laughs> I never could understand anyone liking that movie. Just everything feels so elevated and otherworldly and disconnected from a world that we know. Whereas 
Guardians feels like a movie that is inhabited by normal people. And again, I wonder whether that's why Ronan stands out that he doesn't like it. It doesn't. It doesn't matter that this is a this is a green alien. That's a blue alien. I kind of get. I kind of get who they are for everyone in this movie. And again, Glenn, Glenn Close like that. She she just that she adds your uh, your kind of like. She's you, you, the Robert Redford of this movie, right? <laughs> and best haircut Here's... in the MCU. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she. she I, I'm sure she's like. Sam, I think Sam Jackson has his own hair person on every movie. <laughs> I think Glenn Close has her own wig person on every movie. <laughs> and it is yeah, magnificent here. Yeah, and that's. And I, I, I think that all of that goes to why in the final act when the Nova Corps when Serafinowicz dies and when the Novikor are overpowered, again, that could feel like just another like step in the final act. You, I, I feel like you, you connect with that when that happens. I'd like the visual of it is gorgeous when they're, when they're creating that shield around the, um, what's, what's his, what's his ship called? Ronan? It's got a name. That's a deep. Oh, the, the, the dark, dark Aster. Yeah. The dark Aster. Uh, yeah, no, that uh, yeah, I love that that sequence with them. Um, every, every time we watch it, um, my wife Jo always remarks on how much she loves um, that thing with them b- building the shield out of the. Uh, I, I think one of the things that's nice about that is it's 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 quite distinct to this. It's sort of it's mm. a feature of those ships yeah, that they come something up you've with seen for before. this film. Yeah, exactly. So it's a nice yeah. And again, I, I talk about this a lot, but when when there is action, when there is big like big scale stuff like this going on, as you have in the third act of Guardians of the Galaxy, I always appreciate a sense of geography to that, mm-hmm. and having like the Yondu stuff down on the ground, the Nova Corps out up in the sky, and then the Guardians within the ship. I feel like I know what's going on. I feel like I know how mm. the different action is relating to each other. Mm. Um, and it's all fun. I think crucially, like the the stakes feel high, but I'm still, and you know, it's it's they're not so high and so like it's it's not like, oh my god, what's going to happen? No, we're still having fun with the characters, and it, you know, even through that, their assault on the ship, you, James Gunn is still pausing to go like, let's have a nice little character beat with that, or let's let's give. Let's give Groot this amazing moment here, where he's going <laughs> to smash people into the side of a thing and then turn around and smile. Let's, uh, uh, you know, let's let's give Nebula and Gamora the moment to have their fight. It, it, you know, ev- everyone's everyone's got their bits to do. The the geography of the action is great. It still looks phenomenal. Like when Groot's setting off those like uh, little fireflies so they can find their way through the ship. I think the third act is what for me kind of elevates. Guardians of the Galaxy, because I think there's a, there was a, I've spoken about this before. The first the the first phase of the MCU, really great characters established, really fun movies, and the third acts rarely work. Yeah, there are a lot of a lot of movies where the best stuff happens in the middle, hmm. or usually is, first act even. But and this is close to you know the I think the Winter Soldier is the movie preceding this, right? <sighs> and that was yeah that was big ships falling down on a city could feel really samey here and i and it doesn't and i and i think a, a big reason for that is obviously the way that the actual the finale comes together with them you know you 
you've you've got them you've got the the lovely we are group moment i feel like i feel like i'm kind of just referencing these amazing moments in the movie (laughs) without spending too much time on them but we've spoken about guardians of the galaxy so many times in the past that everyone knows that the we are group moment's incredible and everyone knows that the dance-off's incredible but i'm trying to think there's not too many marvel movies where i point to the third act and go do you know what a lot of my favorite moments from the movie come in those last 20 minutes yeah, and I, I would say that for, for for a lot of blockbusters, not just Marvel movies. I mean, it's because it's a general problem with blockbusters, isn't it? That they feel like they have to spend the end of the movie giving you like a visual spectacle, so there's not enough time to to pay off character stuff or to to give them, you know, those the memorable interactions and and jokes and you know, moments of emotion that you get throughout the rest of the films. Like, you tend to just have a lot of CGI flying around. And, like, Endgame has this to an extent as well, but certainly, like, Age of Ultron suffered really badly from it. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's as well, maybe, that, like, the, the assault over Xandar, there's so much different stuff going on in those sequences that it, it feels like the third act almost has its own, almost has its own three-act structure within it. And it has its own subplots and it has its own bits and pieces going on that it doesn't just feel like, oh, ship is falling down on city, superheroes have fight. And again, like it, we talked about, Ronan doesn't really work. So like the big face off with Ronan shouldn't be as effective as it is. But then you, you subvert that moment so deftly with the dance off and then the Care Bears moment. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite bit in this third act? Is it like, like is it We Are Gru? Is it the dance off? Is it the Care Bears? What works best for you? Because they're all brilliant. I think, yeah, for me, it's the, it is the, you know, the Care Bear moment of giving you like the sense that this is a film about these characters coming together, becoming a little family, and actually. In doing that, they save themselves, but also they've saved the universe because they've stopped they've stopped this attack that would have you know first destroyed the the Nova Corps and then destroyed everyone else in its path, theoretically speaking like that for me that's the kind of like screenwriting trick where you take the movie's theme and put it into the plot and into the action, and you get all those three elements coming together of like it matters to the characters and it matters to the story and it matters to the plot and matters to the audience. And it's like the, the way those ideas all interleave with one another and then get sort of visualized on screen like that, that for me is what good movie making does and why this, the culmination of this film is like so effective because you literally have them like coming together in a way that wouldn't have been possible at the start of the film to defeat the threat as a big statement of, hey, these guys have have found something special and this is the result. What about for you, Seb? Is that the same moment? I mean, everything you've said there, James, is is entirely correct, no doubt. And what I particularly love in the in the Care Bear sequence, as it is, is the little shot of Rocket's hand <laughs> reaching up to, <laughs> to Drax. But no, I mean, it, it it's more the dance off for me. It's more the 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 ooh child and, and the bit when it kicks in and he's like, bring it down hard. Just, you know, I'm, I I feel I feel bad falling back on the on the comedy when James has just made an excellent point about just how well written and, and constructed and, and thematically. Uh, tight this film is but um 
yeah, it's the dance off bit because it's just really funny every time. Well, I'll talk about <laughs> and I love that then. song. Um, like it's one of my yeah. favorite things on the soundtrack. I'll talk about the We Are Groot moment because there is there is a character and, Ro- and Rocket recognizes it straight away. There is Groot laying down his life to protect this group of people that he's known for a few days, and he he makes that sacrifice to save them, which you know kind of like sets them up to. You know, it's probably the final kick. It's the Coulson kick, isn't it? You know, in the in that right direction to make that sacrifice at the end of the movie. So, you know, because Peter doesn't know he's going to survive uh, because of the thoroughly disinteresting stuff from Guardians of the Galaxy two around his dad. Uh, but Peter doesn't. <laughs> Peter doesn't know he's going to survive, and the rest of them don't know that they're going to survive when they help him. Mm-hmm. But they, but they make that. They make that decision, and and again, I think it all comes back to it comes back to that losers line. I was I was just reading it again when you were talking. When I look around, you know what I see: losers. I mean, like folks who have lost stuff, and we have, man, we have all of us, homes and our families, normal lives, and they kind of they kind of find those things within each other, and are also willing to you know sacrifice them all for each other. I think it's I think it's it's really sweet, and as and as you uh, pointed out very well, Seb. It's done in a it's done in a tone completely consistent with the rest of the film because the dance off moment is I don't know if the rest of it works without it I think it ends up <laughs> you you end up having a very earnest ending to this very fun movie mm. oh and actually and and again speaking of that and it's actually it's actually my favourite little moment um in in the whole kind of last act notwithstanding the very very end which we'll come to which is the um, Drax and Rocket and he strokes, and he strokes Rocket, Rocket. yeah. <laughs> That little moment when Drax strokes Rocket is like, it's possibly one of my favourite moments in the entire film, full stop. It's just... Because it's Drax getting it wrong again, but with with like completely the right intentions. And Rocket flinches, but then goes... Yeah, do you know what? Yeah, he's like, no, I'll take it this time. Yeah, well, I think, yeah. I think, I think he needs this, and I need this. So let's just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's just roll with it. Um, it's just, it's you know, it's 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 what's so good about this film throughout. I mean, I, you know, we we have talked a lot about how what's great about this film is is it finding the humor in lots of these moments. But you know, it it's it's always looking for and finding character. And that is, you know, you've got the look of it, you've got the soundtrack, you've got the jokes, you've got the casting, you've got everything. But really, why this film lands so strongly and why it has such an impact is just that it's it's just so good with character. And that's just that's always, you know, one of the most important things for me in terms of enjoying something. And, and this absolutely does it. Let's talk about the music, Seb. I think we I think we probably need to draw this to a close, given how long we talked about it. <laughs> but talking about the ending and talking about the music at the same time probably fits together. So, do you have any favourite musical moments throughout the movie? Is it? I is mean, it, is it the end or is it just everything? Well, it's a shame it's been a little bit ruined now, to be honest, because <laughs> you know. I mean, it was fairly ruined before, right? <laughs> well, you know, but yeah, but a bit more definitively. Um, you know, I think because annoyingly, in fairness, it is in fairness. I think we can consider the work that Michael Jackson did when he was a child. Mm, true, uh, I know, and and you know, with, there are other people on that record as well. And the thing is, is that it's one of the greatest pop records ever made. Yeah, and it is one of the most perfectly judged choices 
for a piece of music at the end of the film that absolutely matches the mood that you feel because also because you've gone from you I think three of the best ones come at the very end because you've had uh I say you've had Child by the Five Stair Steps which is an amazing track uh you've then you've got when he first plays uh the tape volume 2 uh, you've got um, ain't no mountain high enough, mm. and then it, then the fact to, so that plays out over that lovely closing montage, and then you've got the bit of both line, and just yeah, just having that that piano intro to uh, to I want you back timed with the ship flying off, you know that's what makes you want to punch the air when you see the words the Guardians of the Galaxy will return show up at the end it it's just absolute perfection you know you can sort of you can criticize this film a little bit for the the on the nose nature of some of the soundtracks and i've seen people say things like you know oh you know why is it that like all of the stuff that got picked was stuff that was like really really popular and james gunn has even said that he basically sat down with a list of like what the top selling records of of the decade were and just put them all on a big playlist and and spent ages listening to them and whittling them down I don't mind because I think they're all they are all great records that fit perfectly with how they're used. Yeah, and also if you want to see what the film would have been like with less well-known records, go and watch Guardians Volume Two. And that, cause that's... <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, a minor quibble is the fact that like two of the songs in this film are technically on Awesome Mix Volume Two, but they get included on the Awesome Mix Volume One album, which is the last two. But let's not quibble too much over that. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I think probably those. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, I think "Come and Get Your Love" and and to an extent, "Hooked on a Feeling" fall under ones that I was not familiar with outside the context of this film. So they're just "Come and Get Your Love" particularly is so inextricably linked with this film for me now. Um, so yeah, um, I think that the one that stands out as not really working to me in the context of the film is "Cherry Bomb." I, it, it it that that's the only one that felt a little bit shoehorned mm. when I was watching it for the first time. But and and I will say, whilst I love "Ain't No Mountain High Enough" and um and the Jackson Five at the end of the movie, they they it kind of feels like the movie's done it twice. I'm like, oh, pick an ending. Yeah, true. Because <laughs> um, like, I, I, "Ain't No Mountain High Enough" feels like the the perfect closing song to this film, mm. and then post and it, and it is like you get the montage over it, and you get. You get all all the nice little sweet moments. You get John C. Riley going back to his family and Yondu yeah. seeing what's in finding the troll doll. All John C. Riley and his family who are probably dead now. Yeah, all of them. <laughs> yeah. Um. I also um. I do. Re- I really like the use of Moon Age Daydream as well. Again, because it's a sort of slightly. Uh, it's not the most obvious Bowie to use, and it fits yeah. the nowhere stuff so perfectly. Yeah. Ah. Guardians of the Galaxy, you guys. Good movie. It's pretty good. It's all right. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd watch it again. <laughs> and we have caught up with the MCU. Um, I don't think yeah. there's any more movies coming up in the MCU. I think it's done now. So uh, <laughs> Might have to edit a champagne cork popping onto uh, to that. I mean, there's a good chance by the time this gets released, we'll have seen Spider-Man. So. <laughs> well, you too will have. I'm not part of the Metropolitan movie seeing elite anymore. They could. They might send it to Crosby in advance. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh the guardians of the galaxy will return we will return um but let's uh let's see whether you guys have any comic book recommendations 
based on Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, this is one I of those... you probably kind of kind of recommended them already, right? Yeah. Because I... I can't remember what we did for the last one. Well, this is one of those <laughs> I remember things, I read some Rocket and Groot. I definitely read some Rocket and Groot, that you, uh, the Scotty Young stuff. It's one of those situations where the movie has come out and absolutely blown away all of the previous comics and influenced all the ones afterwards like this yeah i'm sure we've probably recommended them before but the the film is based on abnett and uh, notionally based on abnett and lanning's guardians comics yeah which sort of the original guardians like the ones who have cameos in guardians 2 were from i think was it the year 3000 yeah i think they were from the year 3000 um and they basically recycled the name slapped it on a bunch of characters from the uh, present day Marvel universe and reinvented the concept. Um, so you get, you get this new incarnation of the guardians who then form the basis of the movie. But, you know, until the movie came out, people weren't that bothered. There was, there were some big sort of crossovers on the cosmic Marvel side, but uh, what was it? Annihilation and I uh, forget the follow-up. Or maybe Annihilation was the follow-up. I don't know. There are a couple of stories like that anyway yeah. that, you know, where Ronan and Annihilus are the are the villains and <sighs> they, they came out when I was at the height of my Marvel reading. Like I was reading probably most of the books that were getting released because it was when I was professionally reviewing as well. And even then I just sort of skipped them because they were off in their own little sort of cosmic pocket. Hmm. And they weren't really to my taste. So, a lot, you know, the people that love them really love them. But they were never big sellers. They were just doing their own thing and getting quite a lot of critical acclaim from a small pool of people. James, this feels like a very long way of saying that there aren't any recommendations. <laughs> well, uh, well, hang on. I, I have got one, but I can't remember if we did it at the same time as recommending the the Rocket Raccoon and Rocket and Groot stuff of Scotty Youngs. But in 2015, there was a as well as there having been the the Rocket series, which was one of the best things to come out of the movies, comics wise, because it really did take. The, the movie version of, of Rocket and Groot and, and put them into a comic. Um, that Scotty Young stuff, you know, if you haven't heard us recommend it before, it's fantastic. But also there was a five-issue Groot series, which again did have Rocket in it, uh, by Jeff Loveness. Uh, I can't remember the artist. Uh, but issue specific... I mean, the whole series was good, but specifically, if you just want to pick up one single self-contained comic coming out of Guardians of the Galaxy, issue two... Of the of the Groot series was basically a flashback telling you the story of how Rocket and Groot met, and I love it so much. Like I love it so much, I bought two copies of it uh, to, so that I could have one copy to lend to people and go read this single issue. If you like Guardians of the Galaxy, it's amazing, and one copy to make sure that I kept and always had. It's like one of my favourite single issues. Of the last however long. And I, I probably say that a lot about a lot of things, but it's, <laughs> it's really true about this one. Um, uh, Brian Brian Kessinger was the artist on it, uh, written by Jeff Loveness. Um, yeah, and it's just great. So, um, All right, well, there we go. We, got, we, we did get something out of it. <laughs> um, right, guys, I'm aware that we've been talking for conservatively six hours so uh <laughs> let's try and do the, the the pitch real fast um i basically i want you to pitch me a guardians of the galaxy prequel following any one of the characters that's in this movie uh james i'll come to you first oh god uh i mean i guess the only characters who really have a story outside of um you know drax's family being killed or 
Peter Quill going around being a dick or Gamora deciding she doesn't want to be a villain are Rocket and Groot. So yeah, I would this propose... Is not fair. James I would propose he, that we tell the story of how Rocket and Groot <laughs> met using, I believe it was written by Jeff Loveness, possibly, yeah. I think issue two, was it, of the Groot series? Um, I think that's a really good, really good story that, that deserves to be adapted. You know, it's one of my favourite comics. Probably the best Seb. single issue of anything I've read in, in, in a long time. <laughs> Seb? I'd make a film about Ronan the Accuser going around killing smart-ass <laughs> podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I would have just gone for like the Rocket backstory rather than... I don't think Rocket meeting group. Mm, fine. I would have gone, like, <laughs> what, what, how did Rocket get created? Well, obviously that's, that's incorporated too, right? No, obviously. No, it wasn't. Mm. Um, oh, no one wins this week. No one deserves to win. <laughs> uh, the the listen the listener is the real loser. So that was Especially our podcast. Stuck with us this long. <laughs> that was Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash forward slash Cinematic Universe. And thank you to Gary McBay and Brendan Roberts. You can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe at cinematicuniverse.com. You can follow us uh, You can follow us on Twitter at cine underscore verse and get in touch via Facebook or send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.